could he do that? Are you on What? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber, and alongside me is Logan Camden, and today begins a mega week of Nerd Sesh content. Four podcasts coming your way, possibly three YouTube videos if we get everything that we want to done as we prepare for really primarily the NBA season tipping off, although we will have some NFL content mixed in there as well. But today, we are talking NBA. In fact, we are previewing the Pacific Division. This will be our fifth division preview, and I think, Logan, that this is the strongest division in basketball. So we've got a lot of great teams to talk about today, and we will do just that. So as always, to start, I'll throw it over to you. Who do you have winning this division? Uh, I have the Los Angeles Lakers winning this division, and I mean, not only are they the favorite in my eyes to win this division, I think they're the clear title favorite. They've improved the hell out of their bench, even if they did get a lot older, but they're all guys who can thrive without the ball and who fit into really specific roles. I mean, you go from spotty spot-up shooters and Wesley Matthews, KCP, Kuzma, McLemore, and Markeith Morris to Ellington and Bazemore, who were consistent 3 and D options. I mean, uh, uh, Bazemore was 42% off the catch last season, Ellington 38% off the catch. Then you have Anthony Nunn and Monk all in here. They're good catching shooters, but they're also flamethrowers who can just get hot at any moment. Um, Anthony was, uh, Carmelo was 39% off the catch last season. We have seen him dominate in preseason th- uh, so far against the Suns. He just was not missing. Kendrick Nunn, 42% off the catch. Malik Monk, 41% off the catch. And then they go from a mobile and unplayable big men in Marcus Gasol and Montrezl Harrell to Dwight and DJ off the bench, rim protectors, rim runners, and lob threats. Um, and just other guys who can, uh, you know, compete and uh, contribute uniquely in their own ways. Rajon Rondo can competently run an offense when guys need a rest. Trevor Reza, just a solid three and deer. Now, with this overall, Carson, you know, I don't really know if they can reach the same defensive ceiling that they reached last season. They were first in defensive rating, by far the best defense in the league, but they'll still be near the top of the league in that regard. You've got solid rim protectors, like I mentioned, throughout this lineup in DeAndre Jordan, in Dwight Howard, in Anthony Davis. And again, they've got two of the best defensive players in the world in AD and LeBron. And Russell Westbrook is here, too. I mean, he's a competitor. He is feisty. He is going to work on the defensive end. I mentioned Dwight. Dwight scares me a little bit, Carson, um, in the sense that, man, dude, against the Suns, dude, he was just giving Chris Paul every mid-range shot he wants. He has a tendency to just give guys that lane. Do you take offense with my Russell Westbrook defense comment? Of course I do, Logan. I think that's one of the great fallacies of modern NBA discourse. Russell Westbrook has been on playoff teams since very early in his career, and we have not seen him play competitive defense in a decade. So I don't buy that. When he proves it to me, Sure, then I'll believe it. But I'm not going to go out here and say, yeah, Russ is going to play tenacious defense because this is what we do, Logan. We say he's a competitive guy, so that means he's a do-everything-it-takes-to-win guy, and that's not necessarily true. And it hasn't been true for basically his entire career. Well, I'm at least hopeful and optimistic that that will change here where, I don't know, it's necessary. Or maybe we get the same Russell Westbrook. Again, we keep expecting the guy to change. I would just ask... If every Thunder team that he was on that was a contender, we didn't see him play consistently competitive defense. And every team since then, playoff teams in Oklahoma City and in Houston and even Washington last year was a playoff team. And he's never played plus defense. Why would we bet on it now? Like, sure, maybe there's some ego adjustment, but I just don't think it's the most likely outcome. Okay. Well, I mean, you have your reservations about Russ on the defensive end, and I still have reservations about Russ as a whole. I think you have to, 
after seeing what he's done in all of these different uh, situations. I, I, general decision-making, obviously, that's always been an issue with Russell Westbrook. Just preseason, dude. Again, again in the Suns game, one of the first possessions of the game, posts up a guy, gets frightened, jumps, just throws the ball past half court. I just don't know what Russ does sometimes. And while we're talking about decision-making, the late-game shot attempts, he's still a guy who routinely takes shots early in the shot clock when you need to burn time from mid-range. Just too many mid-range attempts in general. And if you still, if you think that's changed, look, dude, last season was the second uh, longest shot distance uh, you know, per field goal of his career. It's still a major flaw in Russell Westbrook's game. Hopefully, um, you know, the Lakers talked a lot about his jumper being retooled um, while working with the Lakers this offseason. I'm hoping that it's improved. He looked decent off the catch, but Russ is still just a streaky guy. I don't expect that to change, but still, Russell Westbrook is a third guy here, Carson, and I think that's the distinction. Like, he's not being asked to be a number one guy, a number two here. He's asking to be a third option, and that's what I think works in his favor. It's a role that I think he can thrive in. The bench, while it's gotten drastically older, they're still much more improved, and they aren't just being pigeonholed into roles that they don't fit into, and there's so much more shooting down the entirety of this roster. We touched on that all last year. That was the Achilles heel of this team. They could not knock down an open jump shot when LeBron collapsed the defense, when they, they had to plug inside to get consistent buckets, and I don't think that's the case here. I think you've got shooting all down this roster, and so I still think there's going to be a defensively stout team, and they've still got LeBron, so this is my title favorite, and I see them winning well into the 50s games-wise. I, I don't see how they re-up to the Russell Westbrook and improve bench I just don't see how this team couldn't be your title favorite. Interesting. I don't think they are my title favorite. I'm not positive that they're my title favorite out West right now. I still need to see the actual star trio here gel together because I have plenty of concerns about that. And as we've seen plenty of times over, talent accumulation, building star power is tremendously important if you're trying to win it all in today's NBA. But it is not the only thing. And to completely neglect fit can really hurt you. And I'm not saying that's totally what has happened here in LA. And I think they did a phenomenal job of building out this roster around Westbrook and LeBron and AD. But of course I have trepidation about this. These are two fundamentally overwhelmingly ball dominant players whose job is to collapse defenses and playmake there who do not want to sit on the perimeter and knock down catch and shoot jumpers all day. And who in Westbrook's case can't like he's just going to miss all day and defenses will be more than pleased with that. And we also know that neither of these guys are going to be super active off ball. We saw that in Houston. It's just not an adjustment that Westbrook has ever shown us that he is willing to make. So sure, there is some skill set redundancy there when you have two guys who are one man offensive engines and point guards. And then you have this third offensive star, really a second offensive star, but the guy who's going to have the ball in his hands at least, who is this otherworldly lob threat, great role man, versatile offensive player, but who can at times be relegated to this jump shooter, this perimeter presence, which is just not what he's best at. And I think even though we haven't seen the three of these guys together, there are shades of that in preseason from AD where it's a Russell Westbrook possession and he's just standing there behind the three-point line. And especially when you play him alongside a center, you're just not getting the best version of him. So yes, I have concerns and we need to see a lot. And I'm not just ready to pencil this team in and say they're my title favorite. I just want to ask, so I mean, my presumption is that AD is going to run the five this season. Do you still think that issue persists with him at the five, him standing behind the arc, just waiting to catch and shoot a ball? I think that if he's at the five, this team is clearly their deadliest. 
But that is still an important question to me is, is he going to play a majority of his minutes at center? Because everybody in the basketball world can look at this roster and say that's a logical conclusion, but it was last year too, and there he was playing alongside Andre Drummond for 20 minutes a game. Like, they added DeAndre Jordan here, they brought back Dwight, clearly they still value having that traditional center presence, which doesn't make sense. On a roster where you have three guys, your star players who need to dominate the interior put maximum shooting around them. And this roster has that potential because of all the acquisitions they made, but it's not a sure thing to me. So that's an important question still. And again, I just need to see it with Russ. Russ, to, to me, is maybe the least malleable basketball player I've ever seen. He's a guy who plays his style of basketball, who dominates the ball, who takes his shots, who decides, this is my possession, I'm going to do what I want, who decides, I'm not going to compete when I'm playing defense or I'm not going to move without the ball. And to say after over a decade that this is when he suddenly flips the switch, maybe because it's a unique situation and maybe he is hitting that panic button and saying, I need to do whatever I can to win a title. But he's not exactly a guy who looks at himself and thinks, well, the way that I help my team win is doing less. He thinks the way I help my team win is doing everything. And that's why he takes 25 shots a game in the playoffs and has hit 40% of them in his career because he just tries to go superhero mode. And when LeBron James is on your team and AD is on your team and you have this shooting, that can kill you. So I'm concerned about all those things. That doesn't mean I don't think that this Lakers team is better than last year because I do. I think it's more talented than their title team. And keep in mind, I was a huge believer in them on their title run. I picked them to win the title that year. As the season went along, not before the season, but pretty early on, I thought this is definitely the best team in basketball. And even last year, I remained faithful, despite the fact that they had the whole Drummond situation, that they hadn't reliably shown the shooting, that they hadn't reliably been healthy. And who knows what would have happened if they were healthy, but clearly what we saw against the Suns did not look like a title-winning team with AD not himself, with LeBron maybe not himself either, and with the shooters around them going under 30% from deep. One of the major things, though, is I really don't think that happens again. And I do think that this is a different offense because last year, the Lakers were pretty much an average offense. And when LeBron wasn't out there, they were a whole lot worse than that. Two years ago in the playoffs, they got to be an elite offense. And I do see that ceiling here again because you said it. You add four 40-plus percent three-point shooters from last season and Kendrick Nunn. And it's not just that. There's more creation here, too. Malik Monk off the bench can get you a bucket, can playmate. Kendrick Nunn can do the same thing. Laugh all you want, brother, but it's true. And the Malik Monk revolution is coming. And he's going to win a title in LA. I don't even know if that's going to happen, actually, if I believe that. But if anybody can make them do it, it's Malik Monk. But I just think that it's evident. You look at this team and you think it's not the inept Markeith Morris who's just shanking from deep. It's not Andre Drummond crowding up the paint. Even the big men they have are more dynamic athletes like a DeAndre Jordan, like a Dwight Howard. I don't want those guys to play a ton of minutes, but as backup centers, that's about as good as it can get. So they can be really valuable there. So if we do see AD at the five, I think this team is very athletic. I think they're stingy defensively because even if I'm not all in on you with the Russ thing, I don't think that matters. He's one defensive guard and I think that he'll be replacement level because of his physical tools and he'll probably compete a decent amount and he'll be fine. I think it's an elite defense. I think it's an offense that has two high-powered creators and an elite interior big man option in AD. And I think they can play two great shooters on the wings at all times. And I think that they can stagger LeBron and Russ's minutes enough to where 
you will obviously have to overlap them for probably half the game in total. But you get 12 minutes where it's just LeBron running the show. You get 12 minutes of Russell Westbrook against primarily bench units. That dude is feasting, and he is dictating high-level offense. So I'm optimistic about this team for all those reasons. But there's still going to be weird things. It's still going to be cluttered. I still need to see that chemistry-wise, these guys will understand their roles. I need to see that we are getting the maximum value out of a Russell Westbrook if he does have to play in a different role. And the same goes for LeBron on the inverse. I just hope that he is priority number one. And it's not like it's been a beautiful preseason. They're 0-4 right now. Like, sure, we haven't seen them all together, but it hasn't been the prettiest, most consistent thing. So, sure, I think the Lakers are going to be great. And I think that they maybe have the highest ceiling in basketball. I don't know. I would probably still give the edge to the Nets there, but defensively, the Lakers can be on just a different level. But I'm not just ready to sit here and say, wow, look at what the Lakers have done because they still need to actually go out there and do it. And no matter what, the beginning of this season is going to be an adjustment period. Like, they could be close to 500 after 15 games, maybe even 20 games. It could be like that first year with the Heat. I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. I completely agree. I think it could be a major adjustment. And I think I'll add one more question to the ones that you laid out, and that's, (laughs) can this geriatric group stay healthy? I mean, I think, obviously, this has to be a concern just with guys getting up there in age. LeBron, for the first time, really, in his career, struggling with injuries. AD's being able to stay healthy. Then just, hello, Dwight. Like, this is the oldest group in basketball. I still think that has to be a concern. One thing that I think you will agree with me on, though, Carson, in however they stagger these minutes— there will not just be stretches where this offense does not generate points. Like, no matter who you have on the floor in my eyes, with the wealth of, again, creators like you mentioned, bench weapons that you have here, a Malik Monk, a Kendrick Nunn, a Carmelo Anthony, you when LeBron is not on the floor or when Russ isn't even on the floor, I have faith in this team to generate consistent offense for a few reasons. Again, it's those guys that I laid out, Nunn, Monk, Anthony, you give those guys a screen and space on at any area of the floor that you're going to be able to go go out there and get you an ISO bucket. But in that, dude, I think the pick and roll off the bench is going to be filthy, and I think we've seen it in preseason. Dwight and DeAndre are still menacing in the paint, none throwing some lobs, uh, just dumping it down there. There's still consistent options, and I completely agree with you. I think when you're talking about just bench fives, it does not get any better. These guys, again, they do really simple roles, but they are still tremendous in them even at these uh, up there um, at this age. So I just think even if you stagger the minutes, even if these guys aren't on the floor, I think this bench unit is giving them consistent offense that they have just not had over these past two seasons. Let me ask you this. Outside of the big three, who is the most important player to the Lakers' success this year? Tremendous question. Outside of the big three, probably Melo. Like, it, it's weird to say. Maybe you'd go Kendrick Nunn. I say Melo just because... I think he's a sixth man here, dude. I think he's the guy getting the most minutes off the bench. I think he's the most talented scorer still off the bench, no matter no matter your affinity with Malik Monk. Like, dude, Melo's been bought. Melo is just, he's still an offensive beast. Like, he doesn't do anything else outside of shot creation and catch and shoot. But I think it's him, man. I think, I think Melo needs to give this team, he doesn't need to give this team 15 or 16 a night, but I think he's capable of still doing that with the volume of opportunity that he's going to get here. I think he probably gives them, honestly, Carson, 25 a night. Um, and I think he's pretty consistent in the role. Do you disagree with me? For a second, I thought you meant 25 points a <laughs> night. And I was like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 2009. I think that Mello, to me, is going to be a valuable piece here. 
And what we have learned in the last couple years is that that guy can unquestionably shoot the ball if he can do one thing. And he may take some bad shots inside the arc. And as you said, he may not do anything else. But he is a flamethrower from deep. He can ignite a team. He can flip a game on its head in a quarter. So that is valuable. I don't know that there's all that much of a swing element with Melo, though. I don't think he plays 25 minutes a night. That's a little high to me. I think it's probably more around 20 because I think that this is a deep bench and I think that it's also obviously a starting five where, sure, maybe they'll rest their big three a little bit in the regular season. Those guys are still going to play a lot of minutes, though. I think Melo's valuable. I don't know if he'd be my choice. I want to ask you one question before we get to yours. What do you think about running that lineup late in games with, like, uh, you know, Russ at the one, Shooter at the two, Braun at the three, Melo at the four, and then AD at the five? That shouldn't just be their lineup late in games. That should be their lineup. That should be their starting five. That should be their closing five. But again, even last year, when they didn't have shooting of this caliber, that's what they should have done. But unequivocally, it should be big three and two shooters. They are dynamic defensively that way. They're faster. Melo's not going to help you in that respect, but they probably have enough talent elsewhere to compensate for that. They're athletic. They're better shooting. And AD can handle every five in the NBA. He can protect the rim as well as anybody. He can switch out. It gives you more versatility on that end. Like, it's just ridiculous that we haven't all come to that conclusion at this point. So, yes, I think that's absolutely what they should do, and I hope that's what they will do. And if we see that lineup regularly, there's a world in which they definitely convince me that they're the favorite out West, to say the least. And I think it's already very close there. I don't know 100% who I would take between them and Utah right now because I think that synergy is just so important. Like, how guys play together is so, so important. And you can't, to me, just throw out two guys who are actually like oil and water as far as skill set and Russell Westbrook and LeBron James and say, hey, they'll figure it out. This is what we've tried to do with Russell Westbrook before. We tried to do it with James Harden and they didn't figure it out. I mean, he got better as that year went along, but mostly that was because they had to do ridiculous things to make it work and trade their center and throw out 6'7 Rocco as the biggest guy on the floor just because they could not have a non-shooter out there alongside Russell Westbrook because everybody was trapping James Harden 40 feet deep. Like, those are the kind of adjustments that have had to be made for him in the past. So that's all I'm saying with this. To answer my own question, I honestly think there are a few possible answers. I do think Kendrick Nunn is one route because of the blend of not just pure shot making as a catch and shooter, but also creation, a little bit of playmaking that he brings you. He's been very consistent in Miami, and even though he's kind of been relegated in the playoffs the two years that we've seen him. I think that was more of a product of, hey, they had their top three creators in Miami. They didn't actually need him. He was more of just like a placeholder. LA, there's a case that he has a bigger role. I do think Rondo is an interesting candidate here. Like, I don't think that he's necessarily one of their eight best players, but he does have a very unique skill set, and it's not one that they'll need as much now that Russ is there. But I can't pretend that he wasn't their third most important player in a title run two years ago, because that's what he was. And he played his best basketball of the last half decade, and again, now they have Russ to handle those non-LeBron minutes, which were such a huge question mark that season. But I don't know. It worked really well last time in the playoffs, not in the regular season. I wouldn't bet on that. I think it is probably... Maybe Wayne Ellington, dude, just because he's going to play a lot of minutes and is like going to have to do his job well enough. But again, I don't think there's a big swing element here. Ultimately, I just think it's going to be about the role players in the aggregate. Like, I don't know if there's one guy who I could single out because I feel like there's so many guys who if one player is down, somebody else can step up and fill a similar role. Why can't Malik Monk do what Kendrick Nunn does? Why can't 
a healthy Trevor Ariza give you a majority of what Wayne Ellington does, even though Ariza's regressed, and I don't think he's the player he was a couple years ago. He's fine. Like, the depth is just really impressive, and it's a huge difference maker between this team and last year's team when I looked at their depth, and I thought, it's ridiculous who they're playing. These guys suck. Definitely, and I think you identified it. I mean, the role player's job here is to simply knock down shots, and I mean, that's why I don't think there's a big swing with any of these guys, because I trust them all to knock down their open shots. I think none might be a better answer just because he is by far, I think maybe next to Melo or maybe better than Melo, just pure shot creation is, you know, a step above everybody else. So is there a big swing factor for you with anybody on this team? I think the one swing factor that I would have is if, again, if we see any sort of jump from AD in the jump shot department, because that just makes the Lakers unstoppable. Again, it means you have no non-shooters alongside LeBron and uh, Russ. But is there a swing factor with any of these guys to your eyes that could take the Lakers up a notch or bring them down whatsoever? To me, it's about the fit between Russ and the rest of this group. Like, I believe in the role players to do their jobs. Like you said, maybe Malik Monk is the guy who has the explosion. I wouldn't bet on it. But I do think he is one of the more talented players on this team and obviously has shown flashes. But... It's about that fit. It's about striking that balance of who's going to handle the ball in these stretches. It's about ensuring that they do play that group with two shooters so that they don't have the same restricted feel offensively to where it's just like stagnant possessions. You're barreling into crowded paints. There's no shooters around them to keep defenses honest. And I think that they improve in all those areas this year. But I think that this is absolutely about how does Russell Westbrook gel with this group? And that scares me. And it really scares me for the playoffs, man, because I've read off the stats before, but like the Russ trying to go superhuman element is very, very real. And you can be a huge Russell Westbrook fan. That's fine. But it's never gone well in the playoffs. Like the track record year after year after year is overwhelmingly convincing. And that's scary when you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis on your team, because I just want those guys to go to work. And I do think about... Would this team be better if they had Buddy healed? I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't. Because, like, Russ does bring you a lot of creation, dude. And he does collapse defenses. And he does, again, give you that floor general element in those 12 minutes a game, 15 minutes a game without LeBron that you need. But he is also a non-shooter and a guy who needs the ball a ton. And it's going to be tough to find that fit. No, you said exactly what I was going to say is we've been dogging Russ a lot. But... The, again, the thing that this team has lacked the past two seasons is, again, someone to help just take that load off of LeBron to create for other guys. There have been no creators on this team. We've seen what Kyle Kuzma's been doing in preseason. He damn sure hadn't been a creator. There's been none. There's been none up and down this roster, so I don't want to completely dog Russ. I do want to ask you one final question about Westbrook, though. If it doesn't work here, right, say that Russell somehow, some way, ends up sinking this team's championship in the playoffs. What happens from here, Carson? Is he just a free agent? Does nobody pick him up? Like, if Russell Westbrook doesn't work here, then I presume that his career is over. You know what I mean? Like, this is the last, this is the last resort in my eyes for Russell Westbrook. I think that he'll get shipped off to some team that is willing to take on that contract to get some assets with it I don't think the Lakers want to do that at all clearly they want to win the title desperately they want to capitalize on the LeBron window that they have and they feel that this was the talent acquisition move to make it happen 
Russ is not going to just up and retire after this. Like, it's a hideous contract, but somebody is going to need to pay him that money. But as far as teams going out there and viewing him as an asset and a guy who they think, hey, we need him for our arms race, as we saw the Rockets and the Wizards and now the Lakers do, this very well may be pretty much the end of that. And again, we saw him hit his stride towards the back half of the year in Houston. We saw him hit his stride towards the back half of the year in Washington, particularly with the playmaking, where he's dropping 14 assists a night for stretches. But clearly, the progress was not substantial enough for teams to look at that and say, this justifies what we're paying, and this is actually going to take us to where we need to go as a franchise. And the Lakers may come to that same conclusion at the end of the year, or they may feel this is exactly the kind of extra firepower we needed and what we've been missing. And I think both outcomes are very possible. So overall, I'm going to say there's a bit of an adjustment period here. I think that this is going to be a great defense. I think it's going to be a really good offense. I think there's probably a higher ceiling for them offensively in the playoffs because the creation they have will become a little bit more valuable there from Russ and from LeBron, whereas a lot of teams can just kind of flow and produce their points offensively in the regular season, no matter what, as long as they have solid talent. I think that they win 55 games. I think that they're the two-seed out West. What's your prediction for the Lakers? I do think this is going to be the best team in basketball. I've got really high hopes. I think that they end up working this fit out. Right now, I've got them at 59 games, and and I mean, that's the one seed for me right now. Uh, as you know, uh, none of these records are official fans, uh, and considering that I am 18 games over 500 right now through, uh, what is it, five divisions, I'm going to have to make some readjustments, so I'll probably bring the Lakers and some other teams down to earth. So I've got them at 59 right now. They're probably going to end up around 56, 57, and either the one or the two seed for me. Before we move on, let's address Anthony Davis quickly, because we went from seeing AD play his best basketball ever in that title run where he's hitting 50% of his jump shots. He looks like maybe the most valuable defender on the planet with what he's doing, protecting the rim, but also switching out to the perimeter. Just the fully evolved, almost perfect big man. And then last year, we saw him have his worst regular season in a half decade plus and struggle with injuries, and he wasn't hitting the shot consistently. It was just all around brutal for him. He ended up averaging under 22 a game, shot 26% from deep, and then in the playoffs, obviously, was not himself. How much of a bounce back year do we have from AD, and how great does he have to be for this team to win the title? Like, are we knocking on the door if he has to be their best player or their co-best player? Um, I think. I mean, I think he has to be their second best player, and I think he has to be the best defensive player or you know a top three defensive player in basketball. Again, I don't want to blame all of his issues on his shot and on his injuries, though. I think spacing was definitely an issue. Like, there's just buckets that are taken away from Andre Drummond being on your roster. If AD doesn't go back to how he played during the title run, I'm worried about this team. But I think I'm going to let them all fly. I, I don't think my biggest concern is what you know what level he goes back to. I think AD gets back up to that level again with the spacing on this team, just how much more open it's going to be without having an actual five if they choose to run him at the five. I think my biggest concern with AD Carson is just his injuries if he can stay healthy. That's what scares me because the injuries brought a loss of confidence for him. It brought just clanging jumper after jumper. It made him less 
you know, it made him less aggressive in attacking the basket. He was really tentative and just wanted to stand on the perimeter. So I think my concern is just his injuries. If AD stays healthy, I think everything fixes itself and works itself out. But if he struggles again, man, I the Lakers will not be my favorite in basketball for sure. Personally, I think that what we saw last year was unquestionably an anomaly. And you're right about the passivity and that was a concerning theme throughout the year. And again, that can be his Achilles heel when he decides, I'd like to be a jump shooter. I'd like to be a big guard instead of being this freak athlete lob threat. But I just don't think that's sustained. And I think that we see AD as clearly a top 10 player in the world again. And after that title run, I thought he was a top five player in the world. And guys around him have gotten even better. And there is a limited offensive ceiling for him compared to the other best guys in the world, largely. You know, he can't do, obviously, what a Luka Doncic, what a James Harden can do. But he does change everything defensively and I think will be the anchor of a top five defense in basketball. LeBron. I feel like we know what we're going to get for the most part at the same time. It wasn't the most overwhelming home stretch of the season, postseason. Part of that was maybe health, but are you thinking he's still the best player in the world? What are your expectations for him this year? Look, bro, people who like, I don't think he's I don't think LeBron is the best player in the world anymore. I think I would probably give that distinction to Giannis or KD and just in what they're able to do. But to say he's not up there, LeBron is top three. You know what I mean? Definitively. And LeBron is still a top three guy, one basketball. And yes, we can we can blame a lot of it on injury. Carson, to me, LeBron was frustrated. LeBron did not have his heart in it because he realized he took a long look around hit the guys around him and he realized, I'm not winning a title this year. I'm not saying he didn't put in, you know, he didn't put in less effort, but you could tell, bro. Like, you could just tell that he just knew that this team wasn't going to get the job done. And I think that's ultimately what took his foot off the gas a little bit. I think the injury had a factor in it, but I think the biggest thing was just LeBron just knew this wasn't the team that was going to get it done. I think them reloading, I don't think we see it in the regular season. I think with Russell Westbrook added into the fold, we might see pretty similar numbers from him in the regular season once more. But I think playoff time, it's going to come around. And I think we see, I think we see old LeBron. I think we see that old beast come back in and dominate the games that we've always seen him do for the past decade. You know, not on the same level. Again, there's been a moderate level of regression, but I think LeBron's going to be the same beast. best player in the world. I think that title has very much been challenged now by KD. You know me, I'm going to say by Nikola Jokic because I think mm -hmm. he's the best probably offensive player in the world right now. KD is right up there. Luka is up there. Steph is up there. I mean, it's a ridiculous conversation right now. And of course, LeBron is up there. I do think if we see what we have from him so many times in the past, Nobody can really match the blend of control of the game, of elite efficient scoring, and of playmaking that he does. And two years ago, he had one of his best postseasons, well, maybe not consistently throughout, but when he needed to, he was outstanding. And he ended up averaging 28-11-9 on 56% from the field and 37% from deep. That was two years ago. I mean, it was really less than that because the playoffs were played so late because of COVID. So... I think that maybe that ceiling is still there. And I think that you're right. Part of what we saw last year from him was kind of apathy. Like, to me, it's not that, okay, he wasn't getting to the rim against the Suns because he wasn't able to do so explosively. 
they defended him really well, and it was a congested paint at all times because, again, he did not have the kind of spacing he needed, and there were times where he tried to bulldoze his way to the rim, and he was met by help, and he couldn't finish. But for the most part, when he decided to assert himself, he still got to the bucket. It was just, he took eight threes a game because he was like, I'm just going to stand behind the arc and I'm going to do what's a little bit easier on my body. And he took under four free throws a game again because he wasn't consistently asserting himself in that way. He's about to be 37, and it's ludicrous to say, yeah, he'll just kick in the gear. But for the most part, that is still my feeling. Like, he averages 26-8-8 in the regular season like it's nothing. And in the playoffs, I think has a higher ceiling than that. So, I don't know who the best player in the world is right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if after this year we are again thinking it is LeBron James. And I think that AD is going to prove a lot this year. The question to me is Russ, and that will remain the question. So, there's a lot to explore here. May explore it even more in depth, and we'll certainly see a lot as this season progresses. But for now, Logan, let's move on to the second team in this division. Who do you have there? And also... Logan and I haven't necessarily given our title picks here, although he said he thinks the Lakers are the favorite. We're going to do all of that this coming Monday, the day before the season. We'll do awards, we'll do playoff picks, and we will read out to you guys our finalized standings with every record totally locked in. So that's coming. Just be ready for that. But who do you have second here in the Pacific? Uh, I have got the Phoenix Suns, and I just think it's a no-brainer, Carson. I just don't see why this team would regress. Uh, They're... It's just like there's not a whole lot of roster turnover. There's not a lot of changes, and it's a really replicable formula. I feel like I've said that about a lot of teams, but again, there's just not a whole lot of turnover here. Offensively, a lot of crafty pick-and-roll ball handlers with an elite roll man and two solid catch-and-shooters. You got three guys over the 79th percentile in the pick-and-roll, CP3, D-Book, campaign. Aiton, 92nd percentile as a roll man last season. Bridges and Crowder, over 39% as catch-and-shooters. Defensively, D-Book and CP3 are two feisty competitors. You know, they might not be the best defensive guards in basketball, but they are going to give you effort and energy every possession and smart defensive rotations. you got two elite switchable wings in Crowder and Bridges, one of the best pure defensive bigs in basketball in DeAndre Aiden. And for my money, Carson, this is the best five in basketball. And I, I see, like, only room for growth. Like, um, it's a deep west. But if they don't have a deep playoff run, I am going to be astonished. The only questions I think I might have about this team, can Chris Ball, uh, can Chris Paul sustain his level of play as he has had the past couple of seasons? I don't see why not. I mean, you could have your questions about his hamstring. He didn't look like he had lost a step whatsoever in preseason so far. He's still manipulating guys out of the pick and roll. He is still getting to his spots in the mid-range and knocking down shots and confusing big men. And like... Again, I just see major leaps from guys in this lineup. DeAndre Ayton, maybe he extends out to the perimeter a little bit. He's been knocking down some shots in preseason. Macau Bridges, dude, improved ball handling, improved shot off the dribble. He's 82nd percentile out of the pick and roll. If you got Bridges creating out of the pick and roll, this offense is unstoppable. And then your favorite player of all time, Jalen Smith, He's looked good in summer league, and uh, we've seen a little bit of him in preseason. Runs the floor in transition well. He's been taking guys off the dribble to the rack. He's knocking down catch-and-shoot jumpers. We said this last year, and we've said this about Jalen Smith. Could be an X-factor. Like, dude, he's kind of exactly what they need off the bench. And if he's not, well, they've got JaVale McGee to fill in as a rim runner and a rim protector. But I think Jalen Smith could take up this ceiling of this team really high, dude, because he's a very unique player, and he does a lot of things at a very special level. Carson, you probably think they're going to win the NBA title this season because they signed Chandler Hutchison, but you know, I'm still really high on this team. Again, not a lot of roster roster turnover, not a lot of changes. They had another knockdown catch and shooter in Landry Shamit. 
I only see room for growth here. I only see guys getting better, and I only see this team getting better. So barring a major injury or something drastic changing here, I think the Phoenix Suns are going to be one of the best teams in the West and a team that you should be terrified of in the playoffs. Well, I think this team clearly has one of the highest floors in basketball. If they don't win 50 games, you're going to be like, what the hell happened here? Who got hurt? And that's a very good spot to be in. I think that you are correct in that this is an incredibly replicable formula. When you keep basically everybody of value, this was already a team that had incredible synergy. And that was one of the things that set them apart is they barely had any bumps and bruises last year. Like their starters missed, I think, four combined games or something like that. It was ridiculous. They flowed together. They had this clear hierarchy for the most part of CP is going to command the game, but we're going to let Book do it in stretches. We're going to also let Book kill you as this off-ball presence. And McCall and Jay are, for the most part, going to sit on the wings and do their thing in this simplified role. And Aiton's going to roll to the bucket and do what he can defensively. And it just worked. And Cam Johnson's going to come in and be this spot-up shooter. And Campaign is going to run the bench offense. Like, they just had these complementary talents who liked each other, who gelled. And that was enough to get them to the finals in a year when a lot of other teams kind of just took themselves out. And that's not to say the Suns weren't great, but they were stable and they were really solid on both ends. They were top seven offense. They were top seven defense. They had a great starting five. They had a couple really reliable guys off the bench. So I think that they're going to, again, have pretty much all of that this year. I think that they're a boring team to talk about, though, kind of because of that. Because I don't know what changes. Like, Book is going to be who he is. We've seen him continue to grow over the years, really as a playmaker, but the scoring is going to be the same for him unless he suddenly decides, hey, I'm like shooting threes a little bit more, and I'm going to take a couple more of those a game instead of my signature mid-range pull-ups. I don't think that happens. CP, we know what he's going to do. Aiton, I think we are probably going to see... Aiton is interesting because... I would argue for most of last regular season, he was very eh. Like, he was a really good defensive big. He was an efficient offensive option, but he was also just limited. And sometimes he didn't have an impact. And then in the playoffs, he was more assertive offensively. He was great defensively. And then in the finals, it was like he kind of regressed offensively. And I feel like that's what we're going to see from him this year. We're going to see moments where you think, wow, in a simplified role, there are a few people better at just rolling to the rim and protecting the rim. And I think we're also going to see times where it's like, okay, why is he being passive here? If he does get a touch, why can't he put the ball on the floor for a second? Why can't he back down a six foot three guard? Why is everything a turnaround when he gets a post touch? I just think there's going to be good and bad. I don't think that he's changing anytime soon. And I think they kind of need to accept what he is. Mikhail, I think that you're right and that he's developed more off the bounce. A lot of it is just drifting into mid-range jumpers, though. I don't think he has the kind of playmaking to run offense yet. I think it's more attacking closeouts, get into the rim or get into that mid-range area, but that's fine. He does so many things so well, defensively cutting the bucket, knocking down jumpers. Like, what's changed here? You mentioned Jalen Smith. I did love Jalen Smith as a prospect, but keep in mind, and this is what happens, I started talking about Jalen Smith when he was ranked in the 50s on Mike Schmitz's draft board. And next thing I know, he's a lottery pick. So it's like expectations change, and so does your opinion of somebody. He was productive in summer league, but he was also flawed. And you're right, he's an agile athlete, and he can knock down the shots at times, and he can put the ball on the floor a little bit. Needs to be more consistent, though. And defensively, I just think is a little bit weird. Like, 
He's a good pure shot blocker. He's got pretty good feet overall, but he's just kind of a pencil. And I don't know if he's a four or five totally on that end. So I don't think he's playing a significant role this year. So yeah, I just look up and down this team and I'm like, I don't see significant changes. I like a couple of the offseason additions as far as just getting role guys. I think that if you were going to look at an efficiency for this team, you probably would have said backup big man. I don't think that's an issue anymore with JaVale McGee. Very solid defensive center in the mold of a DeAndre Jordan or a Dwight Howard who we were talking about earlier. I like Landry Shamit because you've added shooting to this group. I think they're going to be really good on both ends. Again, I think that they're pretty deep. I think that they have a star tandem at the top who makes it all go. I just don't know why they're different from last year. And frankly, unfortunately, if you're not getting better in today's NBA, you're getting worse because everybody around them is going to be better for the most part. Out West, we are going to see a better Lakers team. We are going to see a better Warriors team. We are going to see a better Nuggets team by year's end. We very well may see a Clippers team that is as good as they were this year if Kawhi is something like himself. And he's going to come back basically at the playoffs, best case scenario. So that's a lot to ask. But there's just so many contenders here. They're going to be legitimate. So I'm not saying they're a class below a whole lot of those teams, but I don't think they have the highest ceiling out of this Western Conference. So that's my take on the Suns. What do you have to add? Nothing. I mean, you you kind of said it all. Like, they're a, they didn't do a whole lot. They're a boring team. I mean, if you want to monologue about Chandler Hutchison real quick, I, I'm not going to stop you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> when I was a young man, really evaluating my first draft thoroughly in 2018, I had a lot to learn. But I said there were three prospects who I loved relative to where they were being evaluated. Dante DiVincenzo, Anthony Simons, and Chandler Hutchison. DiVincenzo, I'd say that went pretty well. Simons, I would say kind of eh. Like he was a late first rounder and he's had some great moments, but he hasn't been overwhelmingly consistent. And then Chandler Hutchison has just kind of sucked. And I thought he was going to be a guy who could do multiple things for you at a high level. Turns out he hasn't really been able to do anything for you at all that high of a level. Had a couple good moments with the Wizards, but no, he's not very good, Logan, and he's not going to play for this team. The signing doesn't make the Suns your title favorite? It actually doesn't, Logan. Boise State's Chandler Hutchison is not going to single-handedly make the Suns my title favorite. I will give you $1,000 right now, 1000 Monopoly dollars, if you can tell me another basketball player that played at Boise State. Justinian Jessup. I want to curse right now. I didn't. I had to stop myself. Did he actually? Justinian Jessup, baby. Boise State Broncos. And, actually, I'll give you a third. Paris Austin. Not even an NBA player. But a guy from my rival high school who then transferred to Cal. He started at Boise State. Boom, Logan. Yeah, go ahead. No, look it up. Yeah, see. Oh, did he really? Did he really play for the Boise State Broncos, as you can see right there? Don't ever question me. It doesn't go well. All right, so I have the Suns going 54-28. and 28. I think that they are the three seed, and I think that they basically do what they did in last regular season, although I think they'll be stronger from the start because last year, remember, they didn't get off to the smoothest start, but then they were exceptional after like their first 20 games. This year, I think it's more of a steady ride throughout. I don't know if they'll be quite as healthy as last year just because that was like freakish luck. So maybe that knocks them down a couple games. But I think most everything that they did, they can sustain. What do you think? Yeah, agreed. I've got them winning 56 games. 
Again, I'm probably going to knock that down a little bit to the 54-53 range just because I've got to make sure the league has an even record. But, yeah, they're going to be great again, and I don't see any reason why they can't do what they did last year. So there you have it. I should have mentioned when I was talking about teams that are going to be as good. Jazz are going to be fully healthy. I mean, presumably, actually. I don't know because we're 82 games away. And, by the way, Logan, by the way, what's that man Jared Butler doing? What's that man Jared Butler doing? He dropped 40. How about that? Carvel Teft, one of his favorite prospects. I said it was one of my favorite picks of the draft. That guy is going to be a really good, legitimate rotation guy for the Jazz from the jump, and just you wait. Utah, man, I'm telling you, they're going to be as good as last year, and I feel like they are not getting all the respect that is due to them. All right, let's move on here to, uh, if you have who I have here, a very interesting team. Maybe you don't, though. Who knows? Who do you have third in the Pacific Division? I don't believe I have the same team as you. I have the Clippers here at number three. Um, why are you looking at me like that, bro? I'm kind of getting uncomfortable. My bad, bro. I'm just a little surprised. Go ahead and make your case. I mean, I just... I think, I mean, the distinction here between the Warriors and the Clippers is, I mean, Steph's going to have to play at another superhuman level. And I don't I just think, I just expect PG to run the show. I think these teams are going to be really similar, though, Carson. I think they are going to be like really in the same kind of tier. I've only got them separated by like a game or two, um, and how their records finish up. It surprised me. I, I did catch a peek. It surprises me you have them winning that many games. Hey, no spoilers. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? You're a wild man for that one, bruh. I don't know though. Maybe I'm just not as informed Warriors fan. The thing that scares me about the Clippers, bruh, I'm not gonna lie to you, is the spacing here. And what I mean by that is just like the pure shooting, I don't think this is going to be the best shooting team in the NBA again, again with the loss of Kawhi Leonard. You add in Eric Bledsoe to the mix, and I like Bledsoe because he takes the weight off of Reggie Jackson having to create as much, you know, takes the ball out of PG's hands, and he can collapse the defense a little bit, but shooting is going to be spotty, and it's just, it's going to be tough, dude. There are a lot of questions I have about this team. Bledsoe is probably the biggest one, but Serge Ibaka did not have a tremendous season last year. I expect a little bit more of regression out of him. Again, you're entrusting a lot of PG to purely run the show. Actually, dude, as I'm talking here, I am not I'm not liking my case of the Clippers winning more games than the Warriors. I'm kind of talking myself out of it here. There's just a lot of questions. Again, I expect this team to be a really good three-point shooting roster, not as prolific as last year. I expect this team to be a high-end defensive team, not as good as last year. And honestly, we're really not going to know what we get out of the Clippers until we see Kawhi when it does come playoff time. I don't think there's a whole lot of swing factors here. I think you know what you're getting out of a lot of the guys on this team. Luke Kennard is going to bang some threes. Serge Ibaka should give you decent defense in three-point shooting. Batum, just a 3-and-D guy. The swing guys to me are probably Keon Johnson and Jason Preston. I don't think they play a whole lot in this year. I think that they're probably going to be relegated to G League or maybe six minutes a night. So there's not a whole lot of swing factors here. I kind of expect them to be in the regular season, win 48, 49 games, and... Just kind of be average, unless Reggie Jackson can do what he did in last year's playoffs. But I'm not expecting that out of him for an entire regular season. So I actually think the Clippers are a pretty interesting team. And uh, I sort of went between a range of a few wins as far as where I could see them finishing. I ended up on the low end. And one of the reasons for that is, when we looked at the Clippers last year, 
they were incredibly strange. And for a while, I was resistant to that weirdness because I said, I just don't like it. I don't like PG, Kawhi, pick and roll, isolation, every possession. There isn't a true point guard. Nobody else gets their own shot, and it's just drive and kick. These guys hit threes. And then I sort of woke up and realized if they're going to hit 41% of their threes and be a top 10 team defensively and have Kawhi Leonard as a closer and be deep, they're going to be really great. And I think this was a title caliber team last year. So I think that when you look at this year's team, one of the things that just doesn't make sense is the Bledsoe acquisition. Because you talk about taking that burden off of Reggie Jackson, I don't think you need that. Paul George is your point guard here. He is your ball-dominant offensive engine, and I truly believe he showed us that he can do that. He showed us that in stretches last year without Kawhi, and then he showed us that in the playoffs. Last year in games without Kawhi, they were 6-5 and five when PG played, and I just think his playmaking is good enough now. That's what he showed us. He has that feel out of the pick and roll, and again, if you just put shooters around him, his job isn't that hard. He doesn't have to do what Luka Doncic LeBron James does to get up to six, maybe even six and a half assists a game. So I think he can absolutely do that. I think he's going to average an efficient 25, 26 points per game and six assists. I think it's going to be really impressive. And I think that this is going to be a huge give PG his just due year because we're going to be reminded of what he can do carrying a team that's not a contender, but is just really good. But then when I look at the guys around him, I just think, let Reggie Jackson be the number two. Reggie Jackson can excel off ball for you because he's going to shoot 41% from deep, but he can also get himself a bucket. He can get to the rim. He can knock down the floaters, the mid-range jumpers, and he's a decent enough playmaker. And then on the wings, Marcus Morris, Nick Batum, they'll shoot 40-plus percent from deep. Zubats will do his job as a role man. Why do I need Eric Bledsoe here? Like, you do not need a point guard. Paul George is your point guard. And it's nice to have the defense from him replacing what they gave up for him in Patrick Beverly. And I guess it's nice to have more creation and playmaking and a guy who can get to the bucket. But what we saw is this team was able to excel last year by playing five 40% three-point shooters basically whenever they wanted to. And that's what was their best lineup. And when you have PG and you can put three great shooters around him and a good role man... Great, you're going to have really high-level offense. Now, you've thrown into the mix a 34% three-point shooter who needs the ball in his hands a lot and isn't as dynamic offensively as Reggie Jackson. And I'm just kind of like, why? Because also now, you're smaller. Like, Mm -hmm. I guess that it's not going to kill you, but they have a lot of length defensively if they go Reggie, PG, Batum, Morris, and Zubats. And so even though Bledsoe's a plus defender, again, you're losing some of the length and versatility there. So I just don't really like it. And I think that it kind of sucks for this team. You throw that lineup out there. I mean, what do you think about just subbing Bledsoe out for Kennard? Look, I'm a huge Luke Kennard guy. I've been a huge Luke Kennard guy. I don't think what we saw last year justifies that. Although I also just think we so clearly saw him aggressively misutilized last year. I would ask anybody to go back and watch Luke Kennard in Detroit two years ago, watch how crafty he was as a playmaker and a shot creator, watch the change in pace, watch the touch, and tell me that guy shouldn't have had the ball in his hands more last year. That being said, I don't think he's a top five player on this team. I don't know. Maybe I should still believe in that, 
But like you see a guy for 82 years just get relegated to being 82 years. Wow, imagine that. 82 games relegated to that spot-up shooter role. It'll scar you a little bit. And I just don't think there's a world in which he's entrusted with that kind of responsibility, even if maybe he should be. I mean, he shot 44% from deep last year in the regular season, 41% in the playoffs. I mean, you're talking about going back to that death lineup, going back to that lineup with four shooters. So why not? Like, what is the downside of playing Kennard then? Because he sucks defensively. And if you're not going to use him as a second creator, then he's not more valuable than another 40% spot-up shooter for the most part. Would you run, like, would you run at playoff time? Would you run that lineup? full-time, would you send Zubac to the bench and do exactly what they did last season against every team or just utilize it in certain matchups like the Jazz? To me, it's their best five. Mm -hmm. To me, it's their most versatile group defensively and offensively. I just think having five guys who can, again, hit 40% of their threes is insane and it's something nobody else in basketball could do. But they need Kawhi for that because I don't think they can compete defensively if they try to run that five without Kawhi in there because he's a guy who can battle on the interior and on the perimeter. But I just don't like how Bledsoe mixes in here. You've added talent, but I don't know that you've added talent that really works. I do think Reggie Jackson is going to be great. I do think this team is still going to shoot the ball really well. And I do think PG is going to be a tremendous offensive engine. So I still think this is clearly a playoff team. And look, last year, it was one of the best offenses we'd ever seen. Like, they had an offensive rating of 116.7, which would have been the best in NBA history any year before this past one. And again, they shot 41% from deep. But they had Kawhi Leonard. They had a phenomenal version of Kawhi Leonard. And they're not going to have him for this regular season. If he's back nine months from his injury, which is a reasonable best case scenario, that will be right at the beginning of the playoffs. So when we're talking about regular season Clippers, we're talking about a world without Kawhi Leonard. I do think there's a couple of interesting swing elements here that we haven't really touched on yet. You briefly mentioned the young guys. I do think that's interesting. But first off, when we're looking at this team and how so many guys in this rotation are just the kind of simple spot-up shooter thing, one guy who can do a little bit more than that is Justice Winslow, who they brought in on a two-year, $8 million deal. At this point, my expectations for him are low just because we haven't seen him stay healthy and we haven't seen him produce in years when he has been healthy. But he is talented and he does have his moments playmaking defensively, and if he can get the mid-range jumpers to fall, which doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's pretty fun to watch. Do you think he matters whatsoever to this team? Is he even a rotational guy? Fringe. He's a fringe rotation guy. I mean, maybe he's in this 10-man group here. But again, maybe you go with a guy over Keon Johnson just because of the energy and you know feistiness he's going to bring you. I think there is a route for Winslow to do this. You know, I'd use him still out of the pick and roll because he still does have decent playmaking instincts. He's a smart defensive guy, but, like, it just sucks, man. It's it's what you've always harped on, Carson, about guys that you put the ball in their hands. Guys who can't go out there and get themselves a bucket, they're just not as inherently value valuable as other ball handlers. So it's tough because Winslow does not have – Winslow has basically zero dependable, in my in my opinion, like – nothing as a dependable scoring skill set. He cannot get to the rim convincingly. You know, he doesn't, he's not a knockdown shooter. Like, there's just nothing exceptional that he does offensively. That being said, I do think that there is a way. But it's out of that playmaking. It is creating for others. It is getting the ball to shooters on the wings and playing hard defense. Like, I know you said, I expect, I'm going to be honest, 
I expect nothing out of Justice Winslow. I had really high hopes for him out of the draft. I thought he was going to be special with the Heat. I thought he had a chance with the Grizzlies. At this point, my, my Justice Winslow stock has all been sold. I know you said your expectations were low. What is the route to him? Like, what is the... Actually, I want to say, what is the route to him getting PT? What is the ceiling that you can expect from Justice Winslow? Like, what is the best possible outcome for him this year? I mean, he could be, to me, like a solid seventh guy. If he's going to shoot 34% from three, then I think he brings you enough value elsewhere. But look, the depth here is not a huge concern. Like, it takes a little bit of a hit when you're down Kawhi. But at the end of the day, I love what Terrence Mann gives you. If you haven't been listening to Nerd Sesh for a long time, long before he went out there and had 39 in a game seven, I was singing his, his praises because of how versatile he is and just the various areas in which he brings value. So I just don't think that they really need Justice Winslow. I just wanted to ask because, you know what, why not get into the weeds? It's Nerd Sesh. It's what we do. Here's, to me, the other interesting swing element. It is what you can get from the young guys because the Clippers did not have a high draft pick but they did have multiple draft picks who they use on interesting candidates. And you mentioned a couple of those guys. Jason Preston, who they took early second round, I do think can be a fringe rotation guy. Again, things are mostly set in stone, but I really like his poise already. I love his playmaking presence. This is a guy who was averaging like seven and a half assists per game in college at Ohio, sure, but nevertheless, and is a pretty tall ball handler. He could be a solid shooter. He was 39% from deep in college. Not great from the line, but I think he'll be fine. I just like the rhythm, the pace that he plays with. I think he can get downhill well enough, even though he's not an overwhelming athlete. I think he can finish with solid length, solid touch, and he's a really good passer. So I kind of like Jason Preston. Keon Johnson, I think, is a guy who fell pretty far given his talent level. I also just think he's not ready yet. Like, one of the things that I liked about him was Awesome defensive competitor. I think we've already seen that in uh, preseason. But the shot is just far away. And in the two preseason games that we have seen from him, he's been 1-9. and nine. Until he's reliably knocking down shots, I just don't think he plays. And then the one guy who I will say, Logan, I would be lying if I wasn't intrigued and excited by is BJ Boston and what he has done in three preseason games. Because... They got this dude 51st overall, and this was a guy who a year ago was a top five prospect in the country. That does not happen in any draft other than this one. I don't care what you do. You could go to UTEP and score five points per game, but if you had that kind of pedigree as a prospect, you're going to be at the very least a late first rounder. Harry Giles blew everything that he possibly could have in his knee twice and was still a late first rounder. But this is the exception because this draft was so great. But he's their leading preseason scorer. And, like, he's only shooting 34% from the field, 36% from deep, and it's been three games. But the handle and the shot making at 6'7", from the 51st overall pick, who's 19 years old, how can you not be a little bit excited about that? Obviously, the shot wasn't consistent enough in college. There wasn't enough besides this shot creation skill set that, again, wasn't reliable enough to justify him being a first-rounder. But I don't know how you can't at least be a little bit excited about that because it's just a great value, high upside kind of pick. And look, I'm a huge Jaden McDaniels guy. I'm not going to go out here and say B.J. Boston is going to be the next Jaden McDaniels and that he's a guy who wasn't consistent in college 
really highly regarded high school prospect and then falls too far and is all of a sudden a stud in the NBA. But I just don't think guys can score like that every day. And like he needs more to his skill set as a scorer, sure. But the handle alone and the shot when it is falling at that size makes me excited. But he's not going to play this year. He's going to go to the G League and hopefully light it up. I don't know. We'll see. I was just going to ask, are there any of these, out of all of these rookies, who do you think is the most likely to play an impact on this roster? Any of them? Well, this is funny because I just spent five minutes talking about it. Probably not, but I think Preston is the most likely. Mm -hmm. I wish I could say that it's Keon because I think he could do some of the Terrence Mann stuff for you where it's defensively competing, playmaking solid, really good athlete, but I just have too many questions about the shot right now and they don't need to throw a suspect shooter out there, although they did when they got Eric Bledsoe. Anything else that stands out to you about this team regular season-wise? When we see them without Kawhi Leonard? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a volume of opportunity at that other wing spot. I, I want to ask you, as a big Terrence Mann guy, is there another leap that we can expect from this kid? And, like, what do you think he averages this year with some wing minutes opened up for him? I love Terrence Mann, of course. I've seen some talk about him taking a leap, how some people are expecting that. I just don't think he has the skill set. That's not what he is. He's not a dynamic, fluid shot maker off the dribble. Every time he takes a little mid-range pull-up, he's actually got a decent game there, but it's not just the prettiest thing. I just think he's a Swiss Army knife, and he's a guy who will be more valuable than the raw statistical output will say, but I don't think he averages probably even double digits this year, maybe like 10, 11 a game. I think is reasonable to expect, but he's not stepping up as a creator to me. The second creator on this team is Reggie, and I think that this is a heliocentric offense built around Paul George, and they just let him run the show, and I think he's going to do a very good job at it. My man broke out the heliocentric bar on the pod. Respect, dude. Vocabulary. It's what we do here at Nerd Sesh. Shout out Copernicus. So I have the Clippers going 46-36. and 36. I am very confident that they are the seven seed out West. I think they're firmly in a tier between the Mavs and then the rest of the bunch. I have the Blazers in the eight spot right now. What do you think? I have them going 49 and 33, but honestly, I think I'm going to drop them a few games. Again, I mean, I'm going to have to retool for, you know, league uh, average records, but I, th I feel like I'm underselling the Warriors, bro. We'll talk about that in a second. Quickly, though, before we move on, with Kawhi Leonard, if he is back in the playoffs looking something like himself, how high does this team climb in your West Conference or maybe just overall NBA hierarchy? Great question. I mean, if you get the same shooting, I don't see why they couldn't go back to the Western Conference Finals. It's a nightmare pull for any team. It's the biggest three-point shooting is the biggest swing factor in individual games in the NBA today. And for a team that, again, shot over 40% from deep for the majority of last season that did it well into the playoffs, if they do that again, if they have that kind of shooting, honestly, bro, I don't see how they, why they couldn't get hot for a playoff run and win a title. Like, that's, <laughs> it's the value of the three-point shot. So, yeah, I can see them being a genuine title contender they're going to have a lot of proving uh, to do to me, though, during this regular season. And it's honestly, Carson, I think my biggest thing is just going to be see just seeing what Eric Bledsoe does. I think he's just the biggest question mark that I have on this team. And I'm just going to have to see how he gels with this lineup. And again, maybe come playoff time, though, maybe it doesn't even matter when you get Kawhi back. But if they have that same shooting, I think they're a title contender. 
Yeah, when it comes to the Bledsoe point, I just have to say again, when the scariest thing about you is that everybody on the floor can kill you from deep, why are you adding a guy who has single-handedly ruined teams and enabled teams to completely change their defensive schemes because he is so inept shooting the ball? Like, this is just not a good player equals good for my team. There's not a lot of teams that Eric Bledsoe is good for at this point, even if, again, he has individually impressive traits. I do think that when Kawhi is back, again, we don't know what he'll look like. He's coming off of a major injury. If he is himself, then I think that this team could win a title. They wouldn't be my favorite. They might not be one of my top three favorites, but they would definitely be in that next tier of teams that have a puncher's chance. Because again, if you can rain threes on people for a few series in a row, then you can do what you need to do to win a title. And by the way, that's how they got out of a series against the Jazz without Kawhi Leonard, is they just rained threes for a couple games. And they couldn't have done that a whole bunch of times, but they did it once. And if anybody was going to have a chance to do that, it was the LA Clippers because they were maybe the best three-point shooting team that we have ever seen. So I think this is going to be a really good offense. I think it'll be an above-average defense. Actually, maybe above average is where I should lean on both ends, just because I don't like the Bledsoe fit, and they are lacking in dynamic creation overall compared to some other teams. There's going to be a lot of burden on Reggie Jackson. I think he'll handle it fine, not as well as he did in the playoffs this past year. And I thought about having the Clippers up closer to that 48-49 win range, but I just think they're not going to be as good defensively as they were last year without Kawhi, and I don't think they're going to be obviously nearly as good offensively, but I think the Bledsoe is going to hurt them a bit there. So let's move on now, Logan. I'm going to assume you have the Warriors here, but let's talk about our differences. Give me your entire breakdown of this group. Maybe not your entire breakdown, actually. Just say whatever you want, Logan, but let's talk about the Dubs. I just think I sold on them, actually, bruh. Like, I don't know why I, I don't know why I'm expecting this kind of same mediocrity. The team was top five in defensive rating last year. They were a league average offense. I don't see why they aren't top five in defensive rating again. I don't see why they don't have a top 10 offense this year. I I think I sold. I think I sold pretty hard. I'm not going to lie. Like, I think my biggest issue was just expecting that Steph Curry could do what he did last season to carry this team, but that burden's not going to be there as heavily this year. I sold. Like, like they added more... More defensive assets. You have Avery Bradley and Iggy off the bench. Moses Moody and Kaminga are going to compete defensively. The bench is way improved. I sold, bro. I sold big time. I should not have picked the Warriors to win this little amount of games. Clay's coming back. I guess I guess my questions and the reason that I picked him to win this low amount of games is just that I was I'm not expecting Steph to have his greatest season of all time again, and I have my reservations about what we see out of Clay because he hasn't played basketball in two years. But this is a feisty team defensively. They added more creation off of the bench. Moody, Kaminga, Wiseman, they're all gonna get they're all gonna be better and play better roles, bigger roles in this team. You added a shooter and Bialitza. I think I sold. I sold big time, bro. I think this team probably wins fifty or more games. I think I'm just wrong. I think I'm just wrong, bro. I think that's what I'm getting at here. Fascinating stuff from Logan Camden. Let me explain why I came out here so so much higher on the Warriors than you did. Oh, go ahead. NMF didn't even mention Jordan Poole. Well, Logan, you're going to take everything that I have to say just talking about why you were wrong because I've got just a great speech planned here. I'm going to spoil it right now. 
I have the Warriors winning 53 games. I have them finishing as the four seed. And yes, I am from the Bay Area, and I love the Golden State Warriors, but I was very rational about them last year, Logan, about their flaws. I had them finishing as the nine seed before the year, and what ended up happening? They finished the eight seed, but they lost in the play-in game, so they were effectively the nine seed. But here's the thing. Last year, when Steph Curry played, they were already on a 48-win pace because the guy is just superhuman. And even if you don't think he's going to replicate what he did last year, he will replicate 95% of that. Peak Steph Curry is peak Steph Curry. And last year, he was 32 points per game on 65.5% true shooting. The team was almost 9 points per 100 better with him. There is arguably nobody who amplifies offensive talent just by being there more. There may not be a better score of the basketball in the world, along with Kevin Durant, and he will do so on mind-blowing efficiency, again, while attracting so much defensive attention and creating so many opportunities for everybody around him, and also being a high-level pick-and-roll offensive engine. Like, he's just almost perfect there. Then, as you said, this was a top-five defense last year. I see no reason why that would regress. You added length. You added defense with Clay, with Otto Porter Jr., with Avery Bradley, with Iggy, with both of the young athletic rookies who they took in the first round. And so that helps them. And then the value of Clay alone is huge. In the five years that Clay has been an all star alongside Steph Curry, when they have been on the floor together, the least that they have outscored opponents by is 12.7 points per 100 possessions. And twice, They have outscored opponents by more than 19 points per 100 possessions. To anybody who's not familiar with the exact significance of that analytic, both those numbers will make you the best best team in the league basically every single season. And 19 is like by so far the greatest team ever. And you talk about questioning what is he going to be? Sure, defensively, is he going to be the same all-defense menace that we saw for so many years? But offensively, He's going to be Klay Thompson. His shot is going nowhere. And as long as he can run around screens and as long as his balance is the same, he's going to hit 44% of his threes and he's going to be one of the most unique offensive weapons in all of basketball. And he's going to perfectly complement Steph and they're going to amplify each other's skill sets. And then the depth of this team is just on a different level. Like some of the guys I already mentioned, they have more shooting, they have more playmaking, they have more defense, All these things that should say, hey, Steph, now you don't just have to be the one-man hero. You can do the off-ball stuff at a higher level and more often than what you did last year. Like, you can just be comfortable and we can get the best out of you in every way. So I just think top to bottom, this team has improved. And then, by the way, even though they're not going to have Clay at the start of this year, you mentioned Jordan Poole, man. I think that this is a guy who is a remarkable offensive weapon. I think he's a six-man-of-the-year contender, even though he'll start at the beginning of the season. Like, he has just evolved so much offensively from being, as a rookie, one of the worst players I had ever seen on the NBA floor. Like, he was a spot-up shooter who couldn't knock down a single shot. To last year, as things went on, in two of his last three months, he averaged 18 a game on at least 63% true shooting. Like, Dudes just do not come around with bags like him, where he has this nifty, deceptive, crafty handle, and he's an incredible, adaptable finisher at the rim, and he's a big-time shooter from deep, and he's going to hit 53% of his floaters like he did last year, and he's got the step back in his bag. Like, he is just a natural-born, pure scorer who can do it in a lot of ways, and that is exactly 
what you want in your sixth man. And in preseason, he's put up 25 a game on 52-44-90 splits. So I look up and down, and I think Poole can be a great piece alongside Steph as a catch-and-shooter and a secondary creator, but then also, again, a guy who carries the offense without him. So I look up and down, and I think, now instead of playing Juan Toscano-Anderson and Damian Lee on the wings, you're playing Otto Porter Jr. and Avery Bradley, who are going to bring you that two-way value. You are introducing these dynamic, impressive rookies, and we'll see exactly what they can do, and maybe we'll talk about that in a second. But nevertheless, they're adding depth. Iggy isn't what he used to be, but he's a cerebral, versatile player. Draymond is just going to look better this year. Like, when you are winning, people appreciate Draymond Green, and he was phenomenal last year. The Warriors maybe just didn't win enough games for him to even get his just due. They have guys who work together now. They have guys who complement each other. They have veteran players who compete defensively, who can shoot the ball, who should understand how to buy into this system and how to operate around Steph. And they have Steph Curry. And they have the same identity. Like, I think there is a world in which this team by year's end is a true contender. It's a lot to ask because I don't think that their second best player is going to match up to what a lot of other teams have as far as true contenders go. But I don't know, man. Clay should probably still average 18 to 20 a game, again, on ridiculous efficiency. And everybody around them is improved. So why would this team not win 50 games? Like, they were on a 48-win pace with Steph last year when it was like, oh my God, look at what he's doing. Everybody around him is terrible, and he's doing this in spite of them. So if you're going to have them winning 48 games this year, I don't understand how you're coming to that conclusion. There's my spiel. He's a mess spitting. Good take, bro. I don't really know like what I can add. Yeah, I just think I think I undersold. I think I undersold the Warriors. Like again, you talk about the complementary pieces. Draymond works perfect with Steph. With Clay coming back, like he is just going to find him out of the short roll. He is going to find other shooters. His team's way deeper than it has been over the past couple of seasons. This is the best. This is the best bench the Warriors have had. And if you're just going to focus on one point, you talk about all the added value. Again, this is a team that was running Brad Wanamaker for 16 minutes. This is a team that had Eric Pascal out there for 17 minutes. Kelly Oubre out there for 30 minutes a game. I don't think they have any, like, I don't think there's a player on here that is as poor shooting as Kelly Oubre, you know, outside of, like, Kuminga. But again, Kuminga does so many other things well. This team has improved in all facets. And I think if you're going to look at a swing trait, outside of the additions, it's probably Jordan Poole, dude, just what he can add scoring-wise off of this bench because I think he's a guy that can carry a bench unit. You talk about his scoring bag. Carson, do you see any higher ceiling for him playmaking-wise or do you just think he's a pure, as pure a buck as they come? Well, I think that he is, for the most part, a bucket. Like, I think that when you're looking at Jordan Poole, you're looking at kind of a second coming of Jordan Clarkson. And that these are dudes who are just nasty with the ball in their hands, true three-level scorers, who can kill you off the catch, who can kill you with the ball in their hands. But for the most part, they're looking to score first. I mean, maybe he has a little bit more upside there, but it's not like he's ever going to be close to equally adept as a playmaker as he is a scorer. I've got uh, another question for you. So you say that 53 wins. Obviously, I'm going to take that as the ceiling. What's the floor for this team then? Hold up. I don't know that I said that that's the ceiling. I mean, that's my prediction. Then what's the ceiling? Can they? Can this be the best team in the West? I mean, I think it's unlikely. I think that 
The Jazz are so remarkably sound on both ends in the shooting and the depth and the shot creation. It's just like everything there is a machine. They're a machine. And I think that the Lakers are going to have too much star power. But do I think the Warriors could be better than the Suns this year? I do. I think they could be a top three team. I also think they could fall below this. But I don't know, man. They're not going below the sixth seed. Like, they're going to be better than the Clippers. If they're not, it's a big disappointment, and it means that maybe the shooting on the wings isn't as reliable as I'm anticipating. Like, maybe that could be the downfall of this team. But I just have a lot of faith in this group gelling, and the more I've thought about it, it's like, they're getting Klay Thompson back, man. Klay Thompson is maybe the least dependent star ever on being athletic, on being, quote-unquote, 100% of who he is. All that he has to do is just, again, knock down catch-and-shoot triples and compete defensively. But if he's 80% of what he was, he's still an offensive star at the very least. And then I just look up and down, and I think every spot in the depth chart, they've improved. They've either retained the same talent that was really good, or they've improved, with the exception maybe of the center spot, which I'm just not all that concerned about because we've seen time after time after time, the Warriors don't need exceptional dynamic center talent. They just need guys who can roll the bucket, make decent decisions, and defend at a relatively high level, and then this machine is going to go. Like, I just don't want to forget how much better Clay makes this entire offense because for the last two years, dude, we have seen last year wasn't Steph Curry's nightmare, but it's just not the optimal situation for him. Clay Thompson is the dream partner in crime. That kind of release valve who doesn't need the ball, who will just knock down triples all day long and keep defenses honest. And now he has that back. So I think that this is absolutely a 50 win team. And again, I have them winning 53. And yeah, it opens up the floor. Like, again, the, you had Kelly Oubre last year. Defenses can just, you know, collapse. Like, even Wiggins on the wing. And I mean, Wiggins is coming back, but it's still, it's another dynamic that you just didn't have. I want to touch on the young guys that you brought up, Carson. Uh, to me, one, I just like that these guys are going to have a depth of, that they're going to have a depth of opportunity here that they probably wouldn't, just because they're going to be able to run the bench unit how they want to. You know what I mean? Like, it's just open. This bench unit is going to be theirs, and I think they're. I think they complement each other pretty well. Like even a guy like Jonathan Kuminga, when you put the ball in his hands, he's going to draw some attention and collapse the defense, which is going to open up floor spacing for Moses Moody, for Jordan Poole. Poole is going to open up opportunities for those guys. Kuminga rolling to the rack, and I'm in love with Moses Moody. Carson did a video on the on uh, Kuminga and Moody, the two most important rookies in the NBA this season. I highly recommend you guys check that out. But on that, just like. I just love Moses Moody, bro. I, I think he's the best. I think he's, I think he's just such a consistent rookie. It's like Davion Mitchell. I just think that he would work anywhere. And Moses does a very simple role. He plays that three and D role, but the shot is wet. He has got super long arms. He can compete down on the low block. He can compete on the outside. I just think it works, dude. And the floor is going to be open for these guys to consistently improve. Um, you did an entire video on them. I don't know if you want. I don't know if you want to add anything on those guys. I do want to touch on what you think of James Wiseman because I'm not fully out on that guy yet, Carson. I still think there's room for the kid to grow, but he was underwhelming last year. We have not seen him in the preseason yet, so I want you to touch on those young rookies. But I also want you to touch on what your expectations are for James Wiseman this upcoming season. All right, I'm going to start with the two rookies because I think that we're talking about a potential swing element to me more than. 
you know, what does Clay Thompson look like coming back? This is the thing. And I feel like with the veterans, they have pretty high floors. Like, I know that Avery Bradley hasn't been the best version of himself when we've seen him super recently, and he hasn't been all that healthy the last couple years. But you get the guy on a minimum. He's a 36% career shooter from deep. He's a high-level defender. I just think that's a good signing. Otto Porter Jr. on a minimum to me is just ridiculous. And like we've already seen, that guy is just smooth offensively. He is a very reliable shooter. And again, another guy is going to give you plus defense. And if he's healthy, that's an unbelievable contract. So you have sort of your safe rotation wings there. And then you have the rookies. I think you're right, dude. Moses Moody, to me, is a very pro-ready player, which is insane because he's one of the youngest players in this draft. But he just understands how to fit into a team offensively, I think. And he does have some tools as a pick-and-roll scorer and playmaker. And long-term, maybe we see more of that. But right now, he is a cutter. He is a guy who will shoot in the high 30s from deep. And he is a player who defensively, I think, might be a little bit of adjustment to the NBA level, although he was great in college. I thought in summer league, there were some lapses from him. It's an adjustment, sure, but he has the tools to be very good. But no matter what, I just think offensively, I mean, I like him a hell of a lot more than Avery Bradley. I like him a hell of a lot more than Andre Iguodala. And I'm not going to say I like him more than Otto Porter Jr., but I think that there is a level of smoothness to his game and ease with which he fits alongside other good players that is just tough to match because he's such a great cutter, and again, he's such a great spot-up shooter, and he's a good shooter off movement. Like, the guy is just a beast offensively. He's really good, and I think he should play 20 minutes a game at the very least from the jump. And there's a lot of guys who need to get some minutes, sure, but he should be, to me, a priority. And then Kaminga is in a very different class. I still want to see Kaminga play. And this is part of what's happened when you add these veteran guys as you push these players a little deeper into the rotation. But I still think Kaminga could easily be a more effective player as a rookie than even a guy like Andre Iguodala because he is so freakish athletically. Like one of the craziest athletes I have ever seen, which makes him menacing offensively. Like, to me, he is one of the more unstoppable players I have ever seen just saying, hey, I'm going to get to the bucket. Nice to see you. Hope you don't mind. I'm just going to blow right by you or overpower you, and I'm going to get a good look at the rim. That's a crazy skill set. And when you match that up against bench units, I think he's going to make a lot of guys look dumb. And then defensively, I think he needs to be more consistent, but he has some great moments there as well. And then it's just about the shot, and it's about the decision-making. But I think that you let him go against bench units, you let him attack, you let him attack closeouts, and again, get to the rim, and you say, hey, you know what? Take some shots off the catch. We'll see what you can do. I think that he could easily shoot low 30s off the catch. I think that his shot is really the part of his game that needs the most refinement right now, and that's why he's not a starting level guy or anything like that, and that's why he probably can't play really big minutes for this team in big moments, but I think he's going to be exciting. I think he's going to be impressive, and I think that this is a year when you see flashes from him. You don't see 12 points per game. You don't see a ton of consistent production. Although maybe you could. I don't know. Like, consistency probably not. But he could possibly score in double digits. He's a really, really, really freakish athlete. And he can legitimately handle the ball. He is he's impressive, man. 
But regardless, he's not going to be one of their top five guys. But I think you're going to see moments where you go, wow, okay, this guy can be something else. And then Moses Moody, I think, could by the end of this year, he's not going to be one of their five best players because they have a guy named Jordan Poole. But he could be one of their six best players. And he could be a guy who is worth playing in closing lineups because of his all-around versatility. That was a long enough answer. I'm going to let you weigh in on that before I give my Wiseman take. What do you think about the rookies? Well, I mean, I think Kuminga, I think you, you're not underselling him. I think the numbers-wise, I think you're right. That's probably where he's going to finish up at. But it's not just, like, how he explodes past guys. It's He's an awesome finisher at the rack. And, like, that's not something that's based on his athleticism. Like, he's creative around the rim. He's strong going up. He's got impeccable balance and body control. Kuminga's a beast, and not many guys are going to be able to collapse defenses like that because of his explosiveness. And again, I think the biggest thing, against bench units, that guy could be a menace, bro. He could be a real menace. Um, I have a bigger picture question for you about Wiseman, but I want you to weigh in on what you think about him first because I think there's... I don't know if they'd go for this, but I have a potential trade laid out that maybe if you're off of Wiseman that uh, a team might go for. Yeah, just one last thing quickly on the Kaminga front. I don't know if there's a bench wing in basketball they can stay in front of him one-on-one. So, like, maybe he will score double digits. I don't remember what my exact production prediction was for him when I made that video, but, I mean, he can feast. He can feast on Ben Funich just because of how athletic he is. Because, again, sure, maybe he doesn't have a whole ton of reliable counters right now, but it doesn't matter if you can just get to the rim every single time. So, I'm excited, man. I'm very excited about what we see from both of those guys and I think that they can both have a legitimate impact this year because I think they're both going to be able to defend pretty darn well for rookies. Mm-hmm. It's about consistency there, but they have the tools, and that's important because you got to be able to defend to play on a team that's really good. Okay, when it comes to Wiseman, here's my thing. Because as I said, this is probably one of the biggest question marks on this team. It's just what did they get out of the center spot? Last year, it was a mixed bag with Wiseman. He's an incredible athlete. He is very dynamic there. There are moments as a role man where you just think, hey, that's pretty fun. And he does have some of the perimeter tools with the handle, with flashing the shot. I think he was 31% from deep on limited attempts. Can hit out of mid-range a little bit. The thing is just, really defensively, he was not positionally sound. Like, he was just not in the right spot too often. He was foul prone. I think he racked up over three fouls a game in 21 minutes a game. That's not good. And he wasn't really a massive deterrent as a rim protector. He wasn't blocking a whole ton of shots. He wasn't affecting a whole ton of shots. And he wasn't like overwhelmingly strong to where legitimate big men are like, oh, I'm not going to go and attack him. They could bully him. So that's where I think the issue was. And what ended up happening is because of that, the Warriors were 15 points per 100 possessions worse with Wiseman on the floor last year which is just a disgusting number. Like, when Kevon Looney played, they were a very, very good team, and when James Wiseman played, they were significantly outscored because I just think he wasn't ready. It's not that he isn't talented, it's that he wasn't ready. And so now, after an offseason in which he's been injured and he's not going to be ready to start this season, he may be ready early in the season, but that doesn't scream to me, hey, he's going to be a totally different player. Like... That matters when a guy is not pro-ready and then all of a sudden it's, oh man, halfway through his rookie year, he loses his opportunity to continue to learn. And if you're trying to contend, dude, 
I think I would just rather have Looney. Looney's just a don't mess it up guy. He's a good screener. He's not as good as he used to be in my opinion, but he's moderately switchable. He's got a little bit of touch out of mid-range. Like, I'm not going to pretend I'm excited about Kevon Looney. He's very, eh, I wish Wiseman was better. I would rather see Wiseman out there for fun's sake, but I don't think he's all that important to this team's success. Like, it would just require a lot of growth from a guy who, again, hasn't had the opportunities in the gym to create that growth. If he had had a full offseason, I might feel very different about this, and I might think, hey, James Wiseman is the clear choice here because he's just so much more talented. But at the end of the day, they don't need a guy who can every once in a while put the ball on the floor and shoot 30% from deep because that doesn't matter to a team that's trying to win playoff series. So there's my Wiseman take. I think that he's a rotational piece. I think that we'll probably see him start in spots, but I do not trust him the most at the center position for this team. So my trade proposal, as a Warriors fan, are you still interested or have you ever been interested in bringing Ben Simmons to the Bay? Nope. So you wouldn't in any scenario because I would throw out, I think it's tough. Like, I mean, you're not going to start Ben Simmons. You'd have to bring him off the bench and just let him, because I mean, I don't, how do you start him? You can't start him alongside Steph. You're losing, you're just losing shooting value. You have to start him at the five almost. I don't know. I was just going to suggest maybe Wiseman, Wiggins, and Poole, or Wiseman, Wiggins, and a young asset for Ben Simmons. But if you're not even interested in that, then there's no point so, like, there's no trade offer whatsoever. Like, a Wiggins for Simmons straight up, you wouldn't do that. Here's the thing for me. And this is what I said in my video about Ben Simmons. He can be the optimized, do-it-all role guy if he's willing to accept that, right? He can defend multiple positions at an incredibly high level. He can push and transition and dominate there. He can be out of the half court, probably a good short role decision maker, and can set up others and can score himself attacking switches and whatnot, but not with Draymond Green. Like, if I had to watch those two play basketball together, I think I'd gouge my eyes out. And they could trade Draymond for Simmons, and I do think Ben Simmons is definitely better than Draymond Green, but I just feel like I'm so confident in the fit with Draymond, in the chemistry, in his understanding of the system and his role within it that I don't know if it's worth taking that risk. And I don't know if trading Draymond is how they would go about that anyways, but no, in no world would I want to start those two together. So there were times where I thought you got to trade Wiseman when Bradley Beal was on the board and whatnot. And I would still be in favor of doing something for a player of that caliber who I feel fits. I do feel Bradley Beal would fit here and I think he could make them the title favorite. You'd have to give up a lot with James Wiseman to get a guy like that, though. And I think you'd have to give up a lot with Wiseman even to get a Ben Simmons right now. And I really like Ben Simmons. I do. I just don't like him with Draymond Green. Like, to me, that's a no-brainer nightmare. I don't know why anybody would want that, even though I know Steph said that he wanted it. But, like, Steph, does that mean you want to trade Draymond? Because we've seen the whole Steph with multiple non-shooters thing. Playing Draymond in a non-shooting center is pushing it as is, which is what they're going to have to do. But we saw, man, the 2019 finals when Clay was hurt. And we saw some of the ugly stretches last year. And we saw the four games when Steph was playing in 2019-20. And I don't want to see any of those things again. So taking away spacing, playing Steph with three non-shooters in the starting lineup, I am all out on that. So there's my answer to your Ben Simmons thing. And by the way, 
I think Ben Simmons plays for the Sixers this year. Like, the reports have continually progressed in that direction. We're talking about the Atlantic Division in two days, so we can get to there when we get there. But all of a sudden, he realizes he's not getting paid for skipping training camp and preseason activities, and he starts to get a little bit scared. And now, apparently, Rich Paul says that they're actually in talks with the Sixers to find a resolution. So, sorry, guys. It's going to be really weird, but I think that that's what we're going to see because I don't think the buyer is there on the market, and I think that Simmons is sort of gradually accepting that. But we're talking about the Golden State Warriors, Logan. What do you think about Wiseman at the center spot? Like, what are you expecting from him in year two? I just want to see growth, man. I want to see growth in his jumper because I think that's what the big sell on him was. You know, I mean, an athletic... When he came out of the draft, it was damn, this guy is a hell of an athlete who can protect the rim at a high level, who can be an elite lob threat, who has you can space the floor. I mean, maximize James Wiseman is the perfect asset to have alongside a Stephen Curry, to have alongside a Draymond Green to play in this lineup. But he was nothing like that in his first year. Like you said, honestly, Carson, if there's one thing I want to see, the biggest thing I want to see out of Wiseman is just defensive upgrades, man. I want to see better defensive instincts. I want to see less fouls. I want him to see a, become a better shot blocker because at minimum, that's what he needs to be to stick around this league. You know what I mean? I think honestly, and maybe you'll disagree with me on this, I thought Aiden and him kind of had similar, you know, like similar stock when they came out and similar cells, you know? Big, strong, physical, athletic guys who can do those two things at a high level or are supposed to do those things at a high level that can maybe space the floor. Wiseman's not even close to that right now. So honestly, at this point, I just want him to be a smart role man. I want him to be a smart defensive player, and I want him to see just improvement on the defensive side of the ball more than anything else. Because if that doesn't happen, then you know what he is, Carson? He's just unplayable. He's unplayable. Um, I just want to see him improve defensively. Do you think that's the next step? Is that the biggest thing that you want to see out of him as a Warriors fan? Do you want to see him space the floor more? No, defense has to be the top priority. Spacing the floor is fantastic, obviously. It takes you up another level. But the Warriors have won without floor spacing bigs plenty of times over and over again. It is more important that he can be that defensive anchor. And the difference to me between him and Aiton is that Aiton was just stronger. Like, he was so broad, and he came into the league as a behemoth. And it's not that Wiseman is like a stick, but he's not that kind of strong. And uh, I just think defensively that is significant. We haven't seen Aiton really weaponize that offensively again because he's just soft as a post scorer. But defensively, it's been fundamental to what he's been able to do. So I think that Wiseman could be a really good bench big. Like if he's a bench big, I think that he's great. But I don't think he's ready to start on a team that is trying to win it all. And maybe he gets there as the year goes along. I would love that and I'm not going to write it off, and maybe he scores 15 a game this year, and it's just like, wow, look at what he does as a lob threat out of the pick and roll, and he's a different player in year two. I'm not discounting that possibility, but I'm also not betting on that possibility right now because of what we have seen from him in the past. So, I have the Warriors winning 53 games. I have them finishing as the four seed out west. What's your official prediction for the Dubs, and any other thoughts before we move on here? I've got him winning 47. I'm probably going to change that, though. I, I just don't think I, I understood the ceiling defensively. I think they're going to be. I think they're again going to be one of the top five defenses in the league. Maybe. I don't think I'm stepping on the line here. Maybe it could be the best in basketball. What's the Warriors' best five to you? Like closing or just 
pure talent-wise? Well, a group that could reasonably work together. I guess you're closing five pretty much, yeah. Honestly, dude, I'm going Curry, Poole, Thompson, Wiggins, and Draymond, and that's what I'm closing with because it's the most shooting that you're going to have. You've got, you know, Steph's going to compete defensively. Clay and Draymond are presumably going to lock up defensively. Wiggins is going to compete, so you're not losing value defensively with Poole. And then you've just got two dominant creators in Poole and Curry. I think that's probably my closing five for the Warriors, and I think it, I think it all gels pretty well together because Jordan can now coexist with Steph, create for him off the um, off ball. They can both work off ball. They can work on ball. I just think that's their best five. I think that's probably correct. I think I probably agree with that. Maybe you could argue give me an Otto Porter Jr. in there, but like Jordan Poole is just a lot better than Otto Porter Jr. Like sure, maybe the defensive value is there and maybe you don't feel like you need that creation with Steph, but I think Jordan Poole is just better. And I think for the most part, he should be their sixth man. I don't want him starting for the entire year. Again, he'll start while Clay is out, but I think, I'm going to say it right now, I think he's my pick for sixth man of the year. Like, I think that right now he has really long odds for that, like 40 to one or something. But look, dude, the Jordan Poole that we saw towards the second half of last year was a special scoring talent, as is the Jordan Poole that we have seen in preseason, and he's going to have a lot of opportunities to go to work. Mm-hmm. I think he is one of the most improved basketball players I've seen as far as just looking at a two-year period, what he was to what he is now, and I may do an entire video on Jordan Poole at some point, all right? There's only so much time in the day and so many videos that I can make, but I really want to go in-depth with this guy's game because he's something else, man. Like, again, it's just the bag, dude. Guy's just... Don't make it look as entertaining as he does regularly. And uh, he's a pretty special talent. So there you go, man. I think the Warriors are back. I don't think that they're back to the extent where it's, hey, they're a top three title favorite. But I think they're in that next tier. And they have Steph Curry. Maybe we didn't sell that angle enough. I think he's going to be one of my main contenders for my MVP pick. It's tough because the four seed historically, you haven't been able to win MVP if you're not finishing as a top two seed at the same time. We saw Jokic do it last year. We may see it again this year. I don't think he's my pick, but I think he's probably my runner up and he could go out there and do it. No question, because obviously he got close last year and they didn't win 53 games. They won 39 out of 72. So Warriors, man, I cannot wait, dude. Talking about this team. I'm so excited for basketball, man. Like, I love football. I love the Buffalo Bills. I love the NFL. But the NBA is something else, dude. Hope you're excited here with us and hope that we're giving you sufficient content to buy the time until the season actually does tip off. Okay, one more team here in the Pacific Division, Logan. We go from my team to your team. The jersey that you're wearing, the Sacktown Kings. What are you expecting from Sacramento this year? Um... I'm expecting moderate improvement uh, from the Kings, and I think the biggest thing about this season is, are they going to play any defense? I mean, 30th in defensive rating last season. Carson, that's the second worst. Whoo, that was a whistle. Nice. Excuse me. The second worst defensive team since that stat uh, started being tracked in 1997. The second worst defense since the 2019 Cavs. I mean, they were horrendous. Uh, They were 30th in rebounding last year. But I expect a drastic change. I really do. And it's, it's, it has to do with the culture. Like, I expect just, I, I expect the Kings to be hard nosed, 
dogs. Like, back when Dave Yeager was coaching this team, I expect him to just be hard-nosed and competitive every time out. It has a lot to do with the additions they've made. I think Tristan Thompson helps on that end, just as straight-up rim protection and rebounding. He can do both of those things at a high level, not really anything else, but it's valuable when you have a big-man situation like the Kings do. You bring in Davion Mitchell, who I'm just in love with, dude. I am in love with the kid. Again, I said it about the Warriors. I think this kid would fit anywhere on any roster. He competes. He gets to his spots out of the pick and roll. He has got great change of pace. He is a knockdown shooter. And he just, he works, man. He's just, guys do not have this intensity when they come straight out like Davion, man. He is a worker. He is a competitor. He is a dog. Whatever cliche, whatever analogy you want to come up with, man. Davion Mitchell is a workhorse. And he would work anywhere, but I love it is here in Sacramento where he is going to hopefully, again, change the defensive culture of this team. Mo Harkless, another defensive beast. I mean, he's buried here in the rotation about, you know, eight or nine. But again, he's a valuable asset to have when you've not had any good wing defenders. And Mo Harkless does that at a very high level. Tyrese Halliburton, another defensive competitor. I just, I don't expect, look, I'm not expecting massive defensive improvement. They may not even be league average. But anything than the second worst defensive team in the history of Defensive rating being tracked is improvement. So I expect him to be around, you know, in the 20s or somewhere between that 15 and 20 range. I expect him to be closer to league average this season. And again, props to the front office, man. I've been a Luke Walton pessimist. I've hated the guy, and I've hated what the GMs have been doing for a long time since a Marvin Bagley pick, which I'll get to here in a second. They've done a tremendous job over these past few drives, and maybe it's been a bit of luck having Mitchell slip, having Halliburton slip, but whatever. They nailed those picks on the head, and they deserve their credit. The next biggest thing, something that my boy may have coming here tomorrow, uh, a video on Aaron Fox. Fox has improved in so many ways, man. He's uh, The first is just the confidence, dude. You know, I mean, he's a tentative, a tentative jump shooter over his first couple seasons. He's not, man. The pull-ups are there, and it's not just that he's confident in them. He's knocking them down. The pull-up threes, the step-back threes, the pull-up jumpers. He's just got great touch inside the arc. Like, everything about him in his scoring bag has improved. He put up, you know, what, 28-11 and 11 down the stretch last year? Um, for an 11-game span, he's putting up 30-11. and 11. Like, Foxy has just improved, dude. And I read an article on NBA.com before we did this pod about talking about how the Kings are going to get into the playoffs if he plays at an all-star level. That's not happening, okay? The Kings are not going to make the playoffs, but De'Aaron Fox could very well have another all-star campaign and lead this team out to being on the fringes of the play-in and the playoffs. So I expect continued improvement from him. I just, I expect De'Aaron to stay in his ways, but I expect the biggest flaw in this team, the defensive uh, aspects of this team, the rebounding, I expect all that to a change. And again, because so many teams in the West are getting better, I don't even really expect this to translate record-wise. Like, the Kings are probably going to be in that same, you know, 31 to 31-5 win range, but this is going to be a much improved team when you watch them with the eye test game in, game out. And they are going to be hard, dude. They are going to be hard out every single night because, again, offensively, this team was one of the best in the league. You know, I mean, uh, they were 12th in offensive rating last season. You've still got a lot of shooters here. You've got a lot of guys who contribute offensively out of the pick and roll. Offense is still going to come easy for this team. It's just what the ceiling they can reach defensively and rebounding-wise, and I just I expect gradual, steady improvement from this roster. Yeah. I think the Kings are going to be fun. And uh, these last couple years have felt kind of stagnant from them after they were surprisingly competitive in that 2018-19 season. But... They have added two foundational pieces in that time in Davion Mitchell and Tyrese Halliburton 
where we are really only going to start to see the fruits of that because, again, Davion hasn't played yet and Halliburton was really good last year but is going to continue to improve and that will continue to translate to wins as they put the right pieces around these guys. And then they have had one of their players bud into true stardom in De'Aaron Fox. And like Logan said, we've got a video coming on Foxy this week and I think it's going to be really good. I don't want to give away everything that I talk about in that video, but really I don't care because no matter what, I'm not going to go in as much depth here and you still are going to want to watch that video. He produced at a historic level last year. He averaged 25 points and seven assists per game as a 23 year old. And he became the fifth player to ever do that. Joining LeBron, Luca, Trey young and Nate tiny Archibald, who by the way, happened to lead the league in scoring and assists in the same season, averaging 34-11 and 11, and was five-time All-NBA and a Hall of Famer. In case you're a young buck who doesn't understand how great Nate Archibald really was, that's special company, man. And he just does a lot of things at a special level offensively. He is the quickest guard in the entire NBA. That makes him just a tough offensive engine no matter what because he's really tough to guard. He has the legitimate floater game. He's an outstanding finisher at the rim. He's a legitimate high-end playmaker. And I think the shot is going to continue to improve. He was 32% last year, but you said it, Logan. The advanced shot making off the dribble, he demonstrates. The step backs, he hit 41% of his attempts there last year. And off the catch, he was 39%, which tells you he can knock down an open three. His shot's not broken. And he has the footwork, the handle, the balance to give himself a high ceiling there. It's just about putting it all together consistently. And I think we see him do that even more this year. So look, dude, Darren Fox has averaged 26 and 7 easily this year. I don't know why I said that like it's bold. That's what he did last year. He averaged 28 a game after the All-Star break last year. He could average 27 and 7. I say this in the video, spoiler alert, you're going to hear it, but he could be in the top 10 in basketball in scoring and assists per game, if not knocking on the door in both those categories. That's what you're going to have. So you're going to have a legitimate lead offensive star, and you have great complementary pieces with him. Buddy Heald, he's there. I don't know that anybody wants him to be there. I don't know that he wants to be there, but he's there. I was just going to say not for long. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But at the same time, it's like Ben Simmons, dude. Somebody needs to actually want you and be willing to give up the assets, and he's not doing like the holdout thing. Like he's there. I don't get that. Um, who wouldn't want Buddy Heald, man? Why hasn't anybody traded for him? I don't, I mean, I, I'm, it's probably because of the contract, I would assume, but he's a 40% catch and shooter. He's knocked down. Like, who wouldn't want them alongside a lead guard? I would want Buddy Heal on my team, but when you have an entire offseason and everybody knows you want to get moved and you don't get moved, tells you something at the very least. I would want him again, but all these rumors popped up and nothing ever came of any of them. So, while he is in Sacramento, I do think he helps this machine move, man. Like, he's going to give you four triples a night on 40% accuracy and I think is one of the greatest shooters of all time. Like, as far as pure shooting goes, I think he is one of the greatest of all time because of what he can do off the catch from deep distance at high volume. He's just special. And then you mentioned Halliburton. He put up 13-5 and five last year on 41% from deep. I don't know why he wouldn't replicate and actually build on that success. And I think that he's going to improve defensively because you mentioned that this was a disgustingly bad defense last year. He wasn't great, but he has good instincts. Like he's aware of when to play the ball. He has good length. And as the incentive to compete grows 
And once he gets beyond that rookie year where guys always struggle defensively, I think he'll be better there. Oh, no, I just knew you were getting Rashawn Holmes, so I just wanted to mention his floater game before you had the opportunity to. Now, see, bro, I don't really get that because I thought that this was all about loving each other and supporting each other and propping each other up, and you're here talking about Rashawn Holmes' floater before I can. I thought you had something of value to say. I saw you smirk over there, and I thought, I'll hand my partner the mic, and this is what he does to me. Yes, Rashawn Holmes is a great piece to have here, and I'm glad that they brought him back. I don't think he's a foundational piece, but he's going to do his thing. He's an uber-efficient role man. He does have a beautiful, beautiful floater. And then I think that you mentioned Davion Mitchell, dude. He's going to be great. Like, he's just not going to be, hey, look at this solid rookie. He could be as good, if not better, than Halliburton was last year, and Halliburton was a top-three rookie in basketball. And this class is better. But Davion is coming in ready, dude. I think you could put up 15 and 5, shoot 40% from deep, and clamp people immediately. Because, by the way, he's 36 years old, so you kind of want him to be good off the bat. But, like, he's actually really important to this team's ceiling because even if he comes off the bench as a sixth man, which is probably what he's going to do, he gives you a legitimate intimidating point-of-attack defender, a guy who will get up in people's grills and make them uncomfortable, and even if it's mostly just point guards because he doesn't have the physical tools to guard bigger guards or wings, that's really valuable, and he is going to throw people off their game, and by the way, bench point guards are not going to stand a chance. They're going to cry and just give him the ball, and then offensively, legitimately crafty, nice handle, could maybe be a better finisher, but he's got some craft there as well. A legitimate pull-up jump shooter, very legitimate pull-up jump shooter, and a solid playmaker. So, like, he's going to be great. That's probably their five best guys, but actually, probably not. Because I think that Harrison Barnes, we may not talk about him a whole ton, but man, is he just a good offensive player. He gave you 16-3.5 and three and a half on 50-39-83 splits last year and has improved as a playmaker, and is a great shooter, and can get himself a bucket, and is fine defensively. So, like, offensively, that is a really good top six. And you mentioned it. They were already 12th in offensive rating last year. The thing is, you look around basketball, and there's so many teams that I think are going to be able to score that there comes a point where you do need to be able to get stops to be a legitimately good team. But that top six, man... No matter what they do defensively, they're going to be respectable because of that. And that's why I'm excited about this team. They have a legitimate star. They have shooting all around him. They have offensive talent. Plenty full. <laughs> I'm optimistic. I meant to say a plenty, but I forgot the word. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And you talk about Barnes. Dude, I wish I wish the Kings would run a... And I mean, we're probably going to see this at some point. I just think a really fun lineup, dude. You run Fox at the one... Mitchell at the two, Halliburton at the three, Barnes at the four, Holmes at the five. That's just going to be fun to watch, dude. The ball movement is going to be impeccable. All of the, like, they're just all such high IQ, offensively aware players. It's just going to be fun basketball to watch. And you know the guy that I booted off of there, Marvin Bagley. A part of that NBA.com article I read about the Kings was talking about Marvin Bagley playing at an all-star level. And I'm like, hey, man, pass me whatever this dude's smoking because... Whew, it's got to be some good stuff if he's expecting a Marvin Bagley all-star campaign. And I think people, Carson, just got overzealous. Look, Marvin Bagley has improved a lot since his rookie season, okay? And I have bagged on this kid a lot over these past two years. And I'll give him his due. 14-7 and seven on 50% shooting is, is not easy to do. And he's had his flashes. But it's like, when I watch this kid in the preseason, what does he do that is special? 
This guy has watered down Jaleel Okafor. He's watered down Jabari Parker. Like, he's a liability defensively on the perimeter and on the interior. He's not agile. He's not exceptionally strong. I'd say the only good thing that he really does is, like, as a point of attack shot blocker, he's vertical. And so he can get up and block shots. But you know what? It leads to a lot of fouls. He's a horrid shooter. I hate watching him shoot free throws. Look, guys, I'm a six-foot white dude who's never played an actual game of basketball outside of pickup in my life, and I can knock down 80% of my free throws. Marvin Bagley sucks from the line. He sucks off the catch. He's not a guy I want ever shooting a basketball. Like Carson, I just think, and then just offensively his back, which I haven't touched on, he has no back. He puts his back down and hopes that a post spin will get a little space. His only like actual valuable asset is in transition as a dunker, and he's not even really that fast to get open and like out in space. So I just think if you're playing Marvin Bagley, you're playing losing basketball. Marvin Bagley is not a guy with a winning skill set. He is not a winner. He is not a valuable asset to a rotation. So, like, if you're not bringing him off the bench, which I think he may thrive in, like, off the bench, he could probably beat up on a few bench units. But he's not a winner, and he's not a guy who wants starting in this rotation much longer. Marvin Bagley is not the horrible, absolute dog water, you know, player that I originally thought he was out of the draft. He's not a guy that won't fit in a rotation. Somewhere in some rotation he fits, but he's just weird. He's just a weird guy that doesn't really have any offensive, like, reliable offensive game. And he's not a plus defensively. So I just question why you're playing him when you have a perfect modern day four in your offense already in Harrison Barnes. Like, I just think either moving Bagley to the bench or moving off of him makes this team way better. And if that means playing Buddy at the three, if that means playing Halliburton in the th- at the three, guess what? You're a better team because of that. So I just don't know why this guy is getting such a volume of opportunity. Like, what are you holding out for? What are you waiting to see if you're Sacramento? You've been able to watch this guy for two years now. What, are, what, like, what, what trade are you waiting on to develop? Yeah, I'm pretty much all the way in with you on this. I don't know if I would go so far as to say he's watered down Jaleel Okafor. I feel like he's actually better Jaleel Okafor. I think when you ask what is the trait, to me it has to be a legitimate three-point shot because that could take Bagley to the point where offensively he's a real plus. And then maybe you say, okay, you can justify playing him. I think absolutely he should be the seventh man here. I don't think he should start, but I think he could crush in that role because he's productive, man, and he finds a way to score. And yeah, he loves that spin move, and he doesn't have a crazy deep bag beyond that, but he's athletic. He's got a great second jump. He's got decent enough touch. He can put the ball on the floor a little bit. And so if he's attacking bench units, he can put up a lot of points. But I'm completely with you. He should not be a starter here. I don't know why you're taking a shooter off the floor. I don't know why you are willingly playing one of the worst defenders I've ever seen starting minutes when you have Harrison Barnes and you have these wings who are great shooters and can play make and can play competent defense. Like, I'm all with you on that take. The thing to me is, I don't know if you need to trade him because nobody's going to give you decent value. Like, if you can get a late first for Marvin Bagley, I guess I'd probably take that. But I don't know if I would take a second because it's like he's a solid rotational piece and he can score well enough, and that's fine. And we saw that as a rookie, and we saw that in college. The problem is he's just limited. He's very, very limited. And again, until he starts hitting 37% of his threes on decent volume, I don't think his offensive value justifies the negative he is defensively. 
and I just don't think that he's exceptional in any way. But I do think as a seventh guy, yeah, he's solid, and he's not going to hurt your team. Yeah, damn right. And I think that if he develops that jump shot, guess what, man? I think you can you can stomach playing him at the five off the bench. You can stomach playing him at the four. But there's a direct correlation in the Kings having a horrible, a horrid defense and Marvin Bagley being on the floor. Don't get it twisted. And, like, I'm not saying that Harrison Barnes is going to be better guarding fours, but guess what? He's more agile. He's more switchable. And, again, like, he's not going to be as good of a help side rim protector, but you're not really getting anything in that respect out of Rashawn Holmes anyway. Like, I just... Now, hold on a second here. He's he's okay. Rashawn Holmes can block a shot, all right? I'm not going to say he's a great all-around defender, but he does have good instincts as a shot blocker, and he is athletic. I'm sorry for crossing that boundary, Carson. And the Kings' defense was average when he was out there last year. You're right. It's the Bagley minutes where it's like, yeesh. Yeah, yikes. I'm, I'm really optimistic about this year. I haven't been optimistic, you know, since uh, that breakout league pass year. You guys know what I'm talking about. It was just fun. They played up-tempo. That's what I really expect out of this team. That's what's going to make them so fascinating. The Kings still play at one of the highest paces in the league. They're going to run teams up and down the floor, and it's only going to be better, man, because like, I, I don't know if there's a better... I don't know if there's a guard rotation that I like more than Sacramento, or it's just going to be more fun to watch. Like Again, Fox is blazing fast and also in transition. Mitchell's going to push the pace. Halliburton is going to push this pace. They're going to play up-tempo, and if you are not getting back in transition... They're going to burn you. They are going to burn you. And, oh, man, even down here on the bench, I love a TD. We founded the Terrence Davis fan club a couple years ago. I'm still a big TD guy. Then he had some trouble with the law, and we had to issue a public statement that what we were saying was strictly about what he did on the basketball court. But, yes, we were very early on the Terrence Davis, hey, this guy's pretty good hype train. Did we disband the Terrence Davis fan club? We did have a conversation on the pod, yes, if you don't recall. But, nevertheless, good basketball player. Yeah, he's fun. I don't know how much burn he gets again with his deep uh, guard rotation with Buddy being relegated to the bench as well, but it's a fun unit. So I don't have playoff hopes for this team. I I have very slim play-in hopes for this team. Again, if Fox even improves off of what he did last season, maybe we have a slight play-in hope, but they're going to be a fun team to watch. They're going to play up-tempo basketball. They're going to be better defensively. And again, I think this team can compete night to night with anybody, again, because of the shooting they have on the wings. The competent ball handlers, the defensive improvement that I expect out of this team. So, look, it's not going to win a ton of games, but they are going to be a damn fun team to watch every single night. And De'Aaron Fox is going to be one of the best guards in basketball this year, and I think that's definitive. Absolutely. I don't think if there's really any question about that. And I think that for me, yeah, they're just outside of the plan. I think I would have them as the 11 seed right now. I have them winning 37 games. So I think that their offense is going to be good enough. You mentioned they were the most transition uh the most efficient transition offense in basketball last year. And I just really like their pieces, man. They've got shooting, they've got creation. I think that they can be 20th, 22nd in the league defensively and if they can do that, Again, we're not talking about anything crazy here, but they can win 37 games. Sure, why not? They're really talented offensively, and their depth is solid. I mentioned how much I like their top six, but beyond that, you mentioned Mo Harkless, and Mo Harkless is he very well may start, but I'm talking about you know the guys who I think are their six best players. I don't think he's in that mix. And uh, Terrence Davis, Tristan Thompson, like that's a really solid nine deep, and so I think that they're going to be perfectly competitive. Let me ask you this. 
Do you think Tyrese Halliburton is a significantly different player than he was last year? I don't think I don't think we're going to see like major improvement out of Halliburton. And what I mean by that is just I don't think Halliburton is a transcendent piece. You know, I don't think Halliburton has this crazy high ceiling. I just think that he's a winning basketball player. And I know that's what everybody said about him last year. I think if he had the volume of opportunity, you might see, you know, physical number production out of him raised. But like Halliburton does what he does in a good role. He moves the basketball uh, to where it needs to be moved in the offense. He's really good out of the pick and roll. I just don't think he has that. There's nothing that, you know, that's it about Halliburton that makes him break out as a transcendent talent. But I don't think that, you know, I think 15 and 6 or 15 and 5, 15 and 7, I think it's what you can expect out of the kid because he makes good decisions on offense, he competes defensively, and he's a knockdown shooter. Again, like, I just don't, you know, Fox has his speed. Mitchell has his tenacity. And, you know, he can anchor a defense I don't know if Halliburton has that, you know, that one trait that really makes him stick out. I just think he plays winning off-ball and on-ball basketball, and that's something that I wouldn't trade for the world. So, no, I don't think he's a drastically different player. I don't even know if he's a drastically improved player. He's a building block, though, and that's what we need in Sacramento. I think he's a great piece. I think that you're right. I don't really see that star ceiling for him, and I was probably too low on Halliburton as a prospect because basically that's what I questioned. What? Logan took a deep sip of water and then groaned. <laughs> no, it's just, you were high on Halliburton. I just didn't think you were going to say the star thing. You were, you liked Halliburton out of the draft, though. I was critical of Halliburton. I really liked him initially, and then I was like, hold on a second. What does this guy do that says to me, lead ball handler star? And I think that that was just a mistake on my part, because that's not what he has to be. He's just great at a lot of things, and that makes him a perfect complimentary piece. So... I think he's going to have another really good year. I think Davion's going to be really good off the jump, and it's just a fun team. I want to clarify, I don't think Mo Harkless is going to start for this team, all right? I'm not really sure why I said he very well may. He just started their last preseason game, and that was kind of fresh in my mind. He's a decent rotational guy, but, like, he's not an exceptional player, really, in any way. But he's okay. So, what was your official prediction for the Kings win-wise? So, I have them winning 34 games. Again, I may bump them a few. I originally, I told you as we were leaving class, because, you know, I'd never talk about basketball in class. We are gentlemen and scholars here. That is just disrespectful to my professors here at this outstanding university. I would never use in-class time to, you know, thank or even research basketball. As I was leaving class, as I said, uh, I said I thought I might book this team to win 40 games. That was egregious. That was outrageous. I was just, you know, off my rocker there, being a little too optimistic I think 37 wins is pretty reasonable. I'm going to go on the low end just because injuries play a factor. I, I don't really know what the defensive ceiling that we're going to reach is. So I'm going to go with 34 right now. And again, every team is getting better in the West. It's just going to be a dogfight. So I'm going to stick with 34, probably be in that 34 to 36 range. I would be a little disappointed if the Kings won 34 games. Just because, again, that wouldn't be progress. I mean, that'd be a worse winning percentage than last year. And you're right. Everything around them is getting tougher and they need to actually get some stops this year but I just think De'Aaron Fox is a star and I think that they have nailed their last two draft picks and I think that they have solid talent kind of all around so I want them to be better than that but this is the thing like the Kings the Timberwolves these are teams that have a lot of offensive talent but probably just aren't complete enough and aren't going to compare to the legitimate playoff teams out west and so yeah they're not going to win 40 games probably but that's a bummer because they're really talented the NBA is just insane right now it is insane the kind of talent that we are seeing, and that is yet again the takeaway here. So there you have it. 
That was the Pacific Division. Very sorry that we couldn't do this one live on YouTube. The Wi-Fi at our apartment building has been unbelievably bad. So hopefully we're able to go live for the next couple of days because, as I've said, we do have four shows this week. One today, one tomorrow, our NFL Weekly Takeaways, and then our last division preview on the Atlantic Division on Wednesday. This is still going to go up live on YouTube as a premiere, so hopefully those of you who have sat through that and enjoyed it, you had a good time. But regardless, as long as you want to stick around and enjoy some more nerd slash content, which I hope you do, you can find a lot of it on our YouTube channel. Again, we do live stream our shows here. We also post video breakdowns, video essays. As I've said, we have a few of those coming this week, including one on De'Aaron Fox by yours truly. You can also listen to the podcast in audio form only on Spotify, Apple, wherever you choose, and I will link that in the description here. You can follow us on social media. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh, and Instagram is at nerd sesh. And with that, as always, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh.